I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Love Actually. Now, I was going to play you the trailer like I normally do. There's an American trailer and there's a UK trailer and they're both fucking shit. The American one's like, the British people have done a thing that's kind of cute. We can't say any naughty words. This holiday season, join this unforgettable filmmaking team. Welcome, Prime Minister. This is Natalie. Hello, David. I mean, sir. 20 years ago, you'd have been just his time. <laughs> Universal Pictures invites you. What's the best sex you've ever had? Britney Spears. No, I ain't kidding. <laughs> she was rubbish. And the British one was like, look at this. We got them. We got them. We got him. We got her. Her off of EastEnders. Yeah, it's all visual. Right, who'd have to screw around here to get a cup of tea and a chocolate biscuit? Right. It's gonna be a very good Christmas. Oh, God, she's in. So, piss it, as Martin McCutcheon would say. Let's just go for the opening, which always gets to me. Whenever I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. Since 2003, Love Actually has been a perennial Christmas favourite. It has been subject to the same kind of scrutiny as any very popular thing that girls like. It was one of the three films directed by British comedy institution Richard Curtis, and we've already covered the third of his films, About Time, which we love despite its patronising treatment of women as adorable creatures who mustn't be bothered by all the complications of time travel. His writing style is painfully upper-middle-class British and while frequently hilarious, and it's gentle most of the time, especially depending on the actor delivering those lines, it can also come off as condescending and definitely painting a picture of a heightened reality that has almost no grounding in our reality. This version of London makes Paddington look like lock, stock and two smoking barrels. <laughs> We've seen the second of his films, The Boat That Rocked, and I absolutely loathed it. And this was unexpected. I didn't expect to hate this film. Uh, and this time it was because of its treatment of women. Like, it's way worse in that. It's about uh, a bunch of rock stars and radio DJs. I, I believe it's based on a true story of like yes, a radio station on the ship. On if, if it's true, then I hate everyone involved with Radio Caroline. <laughs> Though I wouldn't phone them to tell them that. However, this one, Love Actually is a series of interconnected stories of love, or what could be disguised as love in multiple forms. Romantic, workplace fixation, lust, infatuation, obsession, platonic, paternal, sororal, self-sacrificial, grieving, the sting of betrayal, hitting the barriers of class, 
and the giddy heights of grand gestures. And some of those relationships are pretty healthy and aspirational, but some of them are creepy and destructive by design. And a few of them are pitched at us as dreamily romantic, but are actually deeply unhealthy. So, to help us sift through these in order of healthiness, we have back on the show, direct from Down Under, Dr. Hunter Mulcair. Hi, good to be with you. Of the Two Shrinks pod. And I've asked Hunter to study this and arrange each relationship in order of healthiness, worst to best. And while Sharon and I have made our own list orders, guessing at Hunter's professional psychological diagnoses, we will go in his order. That way we can start out mixing criticism of weaker elements of the film with genuinely bad behaviour and work our way up to the pinnacle examples within the film of how people should really be treated. And when I pitched this, I completely forgot that the Cinema Therapy YouTube channel had done something very similar last year. Luckily, I can't actually remember much more than the salient points of that one, although I will be watching it straight after this recording to potentially give me some extra perspective in the edit. So to start us off, and assuming most of our listeners have seen this one, I talked to somebody uh, last night who was like, oh, and I saw that for the first time this year, and it's like, this thing is 20 years old. This is its 20th anniversary. You were dodging bullets every Christmas by not seeing this. Like, how did, how did that you accomplish that? It's like saying I've never seen Star Wars. That doesn't mean it's as good as Star Wars. It just means it's as ubiquitous at Christmas time as Star Wars. You know what? It's like even more impressive, right? Like because Star Wars kind of just bubbles around, but like Love Actually, like I know people who like every Christmas, this is what they watch, and yeah, and it it's brings, comforting. Brings them great comfort and joy. Yeah. So we absolutely do not want to say Ew, people watching this and loving it are idiots. I I know that I'm going to ask my mum to listen to this one because she loves Love Actually, I think. So, uh, hi, mum. And <laughs> I like Love Actually. Yeah, overall, I do. There are elements of it I really like. There are elements of it I want to throw rotten tomatoes at. So, let's get into those, then. <laughs> uh, Hunter, yeah. so which is the first on your list? And, folks, if you'll excuse me, I have to have my breakfast because we had to meet Hunter at, like, 9 o'clock at night, his time, and 10 o'clock in the morning, our time. <laughs> Oh, Australia. It's like the most inconvenient place on the planet. I struggled with ordering them. So I kind of put them into terrible, moderate and good question mark. We could start with Juliet and Mark and Peter. Oh, actually, um, I got them second to last because uh, this is just my, uh, my guessing. I put Karen and Harry and Mia last because there's so much hurt to a family with that one. Oh, wow. Interesting. See, I put them differently. Mm. Um, well, no, no, it's cool. Well, Sharon, what was your worst? Uh, mine was Juliet and Peter and Mark. Okay. Juliet and Peter and Mark, far away. This well, one's look, quite, uh, like, you can point to this and go, whoa. Yeah. This, I think one of the reasons that this is my worst, and I agree with you, Hunter, it was very difficult to put them in a precise order, so I was more sort of good, bad, terrible or good, reasonable, terrible. Um, but um, but this one, I think, gets special ire from me because there are so many conversations that I've had with people who think it's wonderful and adorable. Mm. Yeah, actually, I think it gets extra points because nobody looks at the uh, relationship I just mentioned and goes, oh, I would love to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would yeah. love to make Emma Thompson cry in a bedroom. Mm. Well, I mean, I would, but in a different... Hey, stop it. <laughs> the two ones that I was buying for terrible were um, 
uh, Juliet, Mark, and Peter, mm-hmm. or we've got Sarah and Carl and Michael. Uh, yeah. So mm. um, I, I have some things to say about both of these. Yeah, go for um, it. Um, start with but, the the, cr- the crazy one. So Andrew Lincoln as Mark with his messages outside saying, pretend it's carol singers. Yeah, uh, and yes, this so- is also Kira Knightley as Juliet and Chiwetel Ejiofor as Peter, who at the beginning of the film are getting married. And they make an anti-trans joke. Yeah. I missed that the one. obvious um, one about prostitutes, which is also oh, anti-sex yeah. worker. Yes, well, no, look, I was um, a bit taken aback by all the uh, fat shaming. So, uh, oh, <laughs> God, yeah, that was, um, and I'm, I'm working in eating disorders at the moment, and mm. uh, so it heightened. Uh, look, I'll come yes, back to that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, I'm, I'm just going to open hard. Mark is a narcissist and he's got an undeveloped sense of self. He has bad relationships with his friend and his friend's new wife. Close. Agreed. So, <laughs> so narcissism is quite subtle because he looks like he is self-destructive. Yeah. Look, I'm, I mean, I'm that, always... that doesn't necessarily cancel out narcissism, no. but you'd you'd feel sorry for him rather than this guy's trouble. Yes, but that therein lies the narcissism. Okay. So. I'm always dubious about obsessional love. Like, can you truly be in love with someone if you've no relationship with them, right? It's it's not – She he doesn't have a reciprocal relationship, right? She says, you know, I thought you hate me, like, you know, or, you know, we don't even talk. So I, I was like thinking about that. Well, okay, well, how does he view love? It's like very psychologically undeveloped. It's, there's no connection. It's very simplistic. You're, you're perfect, ergo, I love you. Like, or you appear perfect, ergo, I love you, right? As opposed to, like, being around a friend, being around somebody and then liking them in secret. No, he's not even doing that. She, she tries to be nice to him and he can't even manage it. The counterpoint is um, Kirsten Scott Thomas' character in Four Weddings and Funeral, right? She's in love with Fiona. Hugh Grant. Mm. I Fiona. love her performance. Uh, yeah. Well, can we do four weddings at some point? Oh, the, yeah, um, no, we totally can. She she declares her love for Charlie at the end of that movie, right? And he he's just sort of oblivious, right? Yeah. But this but guy, but she Mark, says in a kind of forget it. It's not it's not meant to be. Yeah, very it's dignified. not meant. To, that's it. Very dignified, right? And then you know she talks about it and then she moves on. She ditches her black, right? Mm. Like. And and so and this actually kind of what happens right is eventually like his relationship with Mark's relationship with Kira Knightley, um, Kira Knightley's character appears very frozen, like it's stuck. And then he like it, the way it's played in the movie is that he talks to her or you know has the cards talking, doesn't allow her to reply, um, and and then he's like moved forward. But like his version of love is immature. It's one dimensional, as I think I said. Yeah, I well, think it's, it's a crush. It's a really obsessive crush, mm. and like he's terrible. not even in love with her. He's in love with the idea of her because if he doesn't talk to her, he doesn't even know the real her. He's got, That's it. Uh, you know that she may be the reason that that beginning of Notting Hill, that really creepy song. It's that. Yeah. yeah, that's it. You know, so why is he narcissist? He's all his surprises are spectacles. Right, like, like, look at me. Aren't I the caring and fabulous one? Rather than for the other people, they aren't personal, right? They're not like someone dropping around a present secretly to somebody that they care about or love, right? Mm-hmm. For a birthday or a Christmas or something, right? Where the aim is to connect with that person, mm-hmm. like you know, and, and maybe no one will ever know about that present, or no one will ever know anything about it, right? She puts on the video, right? 
she searches through the the, the bookshelf, finds mm-hmm. a video. Although, if you also notice, there's um a rear window VHS. Uh, I, I saw that you yesterday as well. That, I was like, you made a Hitchcock film creepy suddenly. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, and you know, he doesn't really fight her putting it on, right? And then, and he can't, but he and he can't kind of deal with her finding out. He's got narcissists have fragile egos, right? Mm. And, and he you know, walks out rather than in any way communicating. That's it. Right? That's Freezing. very selfish. Yeah. And my my wasted heart will love you. Look, it sounds romantic, but it's very dramatic, right? Mm. And it's like, I'm so in love. I'm like in the most in love person. You know, it's like the, and I've got to get this off my chest. It's the pity me, admire me pattern, and, right? And the, I'm going to be in love with you for the rest of my life. You're never going to be able to forget that you this can't is stop me. in the background. And literally the first thing he tells her to do for him is lie to her husband. Say it's carol singers. He doesn't know what she's, how she's going to react. She could just like start screaming and go, you fucking maniac. Exactly. I, one of the, the points that I wrote down oh, about this yeah. one is that my frustration with Mark is he never seeks Juliet's input on this. He just lays out what he feels and then he makes unilateral decisions about what to do next. See, I think Richard Curtis thinks this is the same as Fiona. Yeah. But it's just not, right? No, so no. It, it made me think of there's a, there's a line that Tim Minchin says about um, he's, he's doing a song about things needing scientific evidence. And the example that he gives that people challenge him with is, well, what about love? You can't find evidence for love. And he says, well, yes, you can. Love without evidence is stalking. And that's what this <laughs> makes me think of. Also, he is banking on Peter sh- shouting, give him a quid and tell them to bugger off and not being the least bit inquisitive as yep. to who's at the front door and why his wife won't come back to him and not just like maybe going to the kitchen and getting himself a drink and he's like okay there's my mate Mark what's up Mark why are you holding those giant placards Mark Peter answering the front door he's not exactly got stuff in his hands that he could secretly hide behind his back or anything that is true yeah Um, could I just well not speak to your wife but just bring her here and fuck off (laughs) it will amuse me And I, but I just think about, like, what's the wash-up of it? If if she'd said, oh, my God, no, I, I like you, what would have happened? Would, would it have been an affair? Like, she runs out and kisses him on the street. What position does this put her in? She now has this secret. Does she tell her husband? And but then, that's part of the romance but, for a lot of people watching that. Oh, she has a secret now, as opposed to, oh, God, she's got a secret now. Okay, this is not a Jane Austen. This is a Bronte. It does not end well. <laughs> <laughs> And now that I think about it, I have written a romance in one of my books, an early one, where two people who genuinely love each other have to hide that from someone they both love. And this is unhealthy. And the book illustrates that after a few years, it's not working. So I'm guessing I took this on board. No, no. And I don't, and I don't think the infatuation and power play would end there. So, uh, yeah, also, he's friends with Emma Thompson's... Mia. The, 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 the Mia. She's in a deleted up. scene. They really know each other. Mm. Mia actually so, suggests, I could have an affair with you. <clears throat> I don't think you know what an affair is, Richard. <laughs> yes. So, and, and that kind of fits with my theory of, of narcissism, manipulation, and sort of, you know, too manipulative people 
flocking together. Ooh. That's a really good point, yeah. Do creeps deserve each other? Yeah. I mean, well, the, no, what, potential home-wrecking creeps. What you said about the grand gestures as well, obviously one of them is the fact that he arranges the uh, the band to play at the wedding, mm. which yeah. it superficially looks like he's doing it for Peter, but obviously he's, he's doing, doing it, it for, for Juliet. Yeah. Um, but who is, by the way, named after the great romantic heroine, indeed. who dies the, after killing herself the other everybody, because of him. The other everybody look at me thing that he appears to do, but actually that deleted scene that Alex uh, mentioned with Mia slightly undercuts that, is the art gallery that he owns. And believe me, I will come back to that. But I have a big point to oh make later. God. The pictures that he's got up of all like the the um, the basically it's... body parts covered up with Christmas things. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like he's put this on as like this is his eye catching, attention grabbing self. Um, putting himself out on his, his art gallery walls. It's a mistake. They send him the wrong pictures. Yeah, he ordered um, sort of family-friendly, Christmassy-type scenes, and they sent him the wrong ones. So this is like Faulty Towers. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> but it does still make it look like he all he's interested in is everybody looking at him. Hmm. Yeah, he doesn't have a good relationship with his mate. No, right. no, like, no, they he don't talk. no, he doesn't seem to talk to Peter but at like, all, really, does he? You know, like, and how, how would you... You know, he's like, you know, there's a com- there's a there's a little comment around, you know, I know you don't like her, but you know, please be nice to her on the phone. Like, you know, it's like, wow, like, what's the state of that relationship? You know, these two guys, mm. you know, whenever the three of them are you- together, Mark goes absolutely silent. Well, I was going to say, from the way they talk, like to say, I know you don't like her, but please be nice. On, I, I did wonder whether that meant that Mark had actually in the past been outright nasty to her. But honestly, I think from the way she talks about it, I think whenever she's around, he just goes, like, completely freezes her out. Yeah, because he can't handle it, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, he, he's not in a great place. Ergo, the relationship's not good, right? No. So and At the end, so at not- least he does say... Enough. So he's off but to a again, better place. This this fits in with what I said about the unilateral decisions. She comes out and gives him a kiss, but she doesn't speak. She doesn't tell him what that kiss means. That mm. kiss could have meant anything. He just walks away. Yeah, she like she doesn't know that he, he's not gonna go, oh it's on. Yeah, it's on now. Exactly. And, and you like, do love me. We don't know if that was her intention. <laughs> that she was hoping that's what would happen. No, that's his reward what? from all the uh, people in the audience whose hearts are melting at his grand gesture. I know, and that's why oh, it bugs the shit enjoy. out of me. Like an eclair. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I and, and and don't get me wrong, I, I I liked this movie when it came out. I thought it was really great, and then I think I turned on it, and then I've now definitely come back to it. Okay. And, and something I'll, we can start to talk about is the difference between love and a relationship mm. is that in that you can have and this is what I say to clients um, people who come to see me right and sort of say well you can love someone but it doesn't mean it's a good relationship and so often one of the things that happens in, in when you're working with people is they're talking about you know maybe I want to leave my partner you know or I'm really unhappy and you can sort of say well look you love them but the relationship isn't going well mm. and you need to do something about that now yeah. what that is then you know, there's lots of ways to resolve relationship you know to try and kind of get people to think on a deeper level around what is it i looked up some stuff about theories about love psychology and love and stuff like that but i think we'll get into it a little bit later
say about um, this this tree <laughs> don't even begin to call it a throuple is they it it are is not, not emotionally um, equipped for a throuple and and just as a point about the film as a whole i do think that one of the things it looks at is that love can be lots of different things and i really do appreciate that that there are numerous relationships in this that demonstrate different kinds of love different levels of love and it's it's never as simple as mm. these two people have a wild crush on each other they have great sex they get married the end it's a great format and idea for yeah, a film as well because absolutely. you are showing various forms of love, sometimes a little clumsily. Yeah. But the, the reason that I, I am not completely this segment of the film should not exist is that it does give a space for some of the best acting in the, in the film. Mm. And I do think in particular Keira Knightley's performance in the, the scene where she sees the wedding video. Yeah. And it's her, all facial. Her dawning realisation about what's going on there yeah. is fantastic. The reason for for it is icky but the the scene itself is really good this was Keira Knightley's breakout year she'd already been in things like Bend It Like Beckham but 2003 was Pirates of the Caribbean 1 so this was the end of that year and people were like Mm. Keira Knightley yes Mm. I always find the line I look quite pretty to be hilarious because she's absolutely staggeringly gorgeous but later on I learned she'd been told by the industry no you look too much like a boy no you've got no tits just love show business there's no business like it yeah the other thing as well just to speak to to mark's inability to really communicate with people he he talks to sarah at the wedding i still have no idea why sarah is at this wedding her only connection is that she knows mia and mia knows uh mark and mark is the best man what string of who's allowed to invite guests to this wedding happened here um but um she uh, she's talking to him about cause her first assumption is that he has a crush on peter and she wants yeah. to give him an opportunity to talk about that but the way he talks to her is so superficial it's it's they talk about the shitty but, dj but he's trying to be really charming and and over the top it, but it doesn't really connect and yet those two are the most in pain yeah mm. Mm. Till Emma Thompson, who overwhelms them with pain. Yeah. Okay, so, your second, you said, was, in fact, Sarah and her brother and Carl. Yeah. Does Carl know? Yes. We've got a couple of triplets. I wasn't going to say thruples. And then then there's a few uh, couples, right? So, um, and there's also a a four. A quad. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, God. I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, oh, okay. It's a woman who has sacrificed her entire life for her brother who is violently mentally ill. Yeah, so so, so Sarah, Laura Linney, so she's she's working in the office. The, the uh, Alan Rickman's character introduces this, say, Harry saying, you've got to ask Carl out. You're like, you've been in love with the designer for ages. And then her phone keeps it's going. Not love, right. it's an office crash. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I'm going to say, I'm going to be very judgmental. She has a very, very bad relationship with her brother. It's so unhealthy. So, particularly when you realize that her brother, who's got mental illness, is on a locked ward, right? Like, so there's no reason that she needs to answer the phone or go to him. Or, or or anything, and and why would he even have a phone at all hours of the day? I Sorry, I'm a psychologist. Think Just about let him these... phone anyone. He can start yes. ranting conspiracy theories. I mean, this, by the way, demonizes her poor brother, who in this horrible deleted scene says, you know, how are you, Blondie, and actually talks to her, and she says, I'm fine, and lies to him, and he says, he comments, I'm in hell. And it's like, oh, my God. They cut that out because it just made the entire audience just 
die inside. Yeah. One of the things that deeply bothers me about this, and you're absolutely right, Hunter, you put words to it that I hadn't quite, but the fact that she she makes the point that there are they've moved to the UK, this, this American family have moved to the UK, their parents are no longer with them, so the only person available to look after him, she thinks, is her. That should absolutely not be the case. She should not be the only person that he is able to lean on for support, especially considering the fact that he is in 24-7 care. So why is she still telling herself that she has to be available to him all the time? That says something about her self-image. Yeah, I was screaming at the TV and... and typing furiously into my phone you know like what is her goal right like is it is it to keep this unhealthy pattern you know and answering these phone the phone at at all those times doesn't help him right because he like calls back right like so the evidence as a as a behavioral psychologist you look at it's like well did it actually help no it didn't help him i Um, hate that carl is technically right because his response is i want to touch your boobies right now and your crazy brother keeps calling where where carl is wrong on this is make an instant decision about it right now because sex is involved that's never a good time to make instant decisions not not good but but she does reject him right like like she does sort of say oh no not you know no i'm not busy you know and like i'm not doing anything important carl does get rejected although you know if you might just like just hang out have a cup of tea or something like i'm sure you could you know, talk to her about yeah, her talk, talk, yeah like yeah, he could, like, he could right. have said at that point i'll go downstairs and put the kettle on you talk to your brother i'll be back up in a few minutes that would be lovely that, how much better would that scenario have become notably she's the only one who doesn't get like a happy ending she's stuck with this situation like she she puts like a christmas scarf on her brother and it's like oh isn't this sweet moving on well so so it's really subtle in the office at the end carl comes up and they have like a little chit chat oh i never saw that yeah like just yeah christmas eve i've seen this film like 20 times it's really like blinking you miss it scene. Well, then that's not good filmmaking. <laughs> Correct. Um, the, well, the, 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 uh, honestly, the best way to do this is that as she's leaving the hospital, in rom-com rules or rom-dram rules, as she's leaving the hospital, a new cute doctor is there who can effectively be there for her brother as well, offer her support and completely understand what she has to sacrifice. And That's rom-com rules, but it's still not healthy because it ties her even further to the hospital. It's not healthy, but like for rom-coms, that would be the, the, the way it would end. If, it was, if she was the only character, they couldn't just leave it like that. That, that happens for an indie film also starring Laura Linney, mm. but it's a sad ending. Yeah. And uh, honestly, do you, know what, do you know what I think actually happened here? I think Richard Curtis watched As Good As It Gets mm. and saw that date that Helen Hunt tries to have with that guy. Mm. And then she has to go and tend to her son, who is sick. And then she comes back and there's a bit of throw up on her. And, she, and you know, they, they start canoodling and then he's like, and then he recoils because it's too much reality, his words. And the idea there being that, you know, she she sort of like goes a kind of a, it's me, this is me, this is my life, I look after my son who is sick. Um, But she doesn't throw it in his face. It's like kind of like, this is me for better or worse, and he can't handle it. It's that scene replicated, but there is a wild amount of difference between her little blonde angel son 
who is sick and does desperately need medical care of a kind that America cannot give him. Mm. And eventually it's Jack Nicholson who kind of swoops in as their saviour, despite the fact that he's a horrible person in that really excellent James L. Brooks uh, movie. But I think Richard Curtis went, I'm going to take that and that and slot this into my movie. Maybe not even consciously, but in the doing of that... He's saying this thing is like this thing, and it's not. Yeah. What what needed to happen is someone to say to her, you know, you don't need to do this, or we've got him, and it's okay. And this dynamic is so so common, and it's not just talking about mental illness, but I'm talking about like medical illness. I used to work in a in a hospital, public hospital, and working with medical and well people. And frequently, I'm having conversations with family members saying, you know, your loved ones in the hospital go home and have some rest right you know it's okay to turn your phone off and say i'm going to turn the phone off between these hours and these hours and you get a break so right? and actually what we need you to do is that right because they're going to come home soon and you know it's like you know you you act as a warm and caring parent type figure um you need your strength you can't just yeah, keep going indefinitely and, and and it's and it's okay so so with the the, the blinking you miss it scene he comes up and they sort of say Merry Christmas. He walks off, Carl walks off, and then she calls the brother. Like, so there's a phone call, and then I realized that the phone didn't ring that time. She called him. She is keeping this going. She loves her brother, but I think it's also that it's so that she feels needed, right? It functions as her feeling needed. Right? This, I mean, again, this could be a whole movie just in itself, and they yeah. do not give it enough time or breathing space. No, well, no. I mean, it, yeah, it's 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 sad, um, you know. And you just you're just like, oh, come on, dude, <laughs> like, the hot guy from the office, just just do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just do him. Have lots of sex and babies. That's it. Two things that um, one one of which I knew I had lifted, the other which I'd forgotten that inspired me. Uh, the scenario with um, poor Sarah tying herself out of obligation to do the right thing to her sick brother, that's Oberon and Ajax in The Princess Thieves. That was conscious on my part. But the uh, Sarah coming up to uh, Mark at the wedding and, and Im Im thinking he's looking at Peter, that also happens with Harry and James and Abigail Butler notices in Steamheart. Mm. So in this scenario, Harry's looking at this couple dancing and he's like, oh, you know, he's a, he's a handsome, smart guy. And she's like, oh, yeah, I mean, he's smart, but she's looking at Abigail at that point. Mm. Well, I mean, and, and again, four ways of funeral, like, you know, Charlie's looking at Andy McDowell when she gets married, you know, like it's, 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 it's an echo of that, but four weddings is much tighter. Um, yeah. And you've also got uh, Serena saying something of a dish, isn't he? And like looking at uh, uh, Charles's brother and then is spoken to supportively and kindly like an adult by Gareth. Mm. Ah, the dish can't you hear. Silent, but deadly attractive. Oh, we're going to do full wins, folks. We'll do that a summertime one. Okay. So, uh, third. Third worst relationship in this. Hunter, go. Well, I, I was going to say Karen and Harry and Mia. Yeah. Um... We can go there. So this is Alan Rickman, Emma Thompson, and uh, this poor lady actress who probably got spat on in the street for being the most awful character in this film. Her name is Heike McCatch. She's German. 
Yeah, I mean, they don't give, they don't, they don't really go into her motivation. She's the new girl in the office, it looks like, mm-hmm. and um, you know, and then she's like openly pursuing um, this married man. Yeah, she's, she's um, someone for the uh, women in the audience to despise. That's it. That's it. So, should we talk theory? Should we go do for it. Say? Let's 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 do that. I looked up some psychological theory in Sternberg. This is some theory from the eighties, and talked about love being made up of intimacy, passion, and commitment. So imagine a, a triangle: intimacy on one side, that's affection, sharing, communication, support, and relationship. Is that that's that closeness, and that steadily grows at first, and then levels off, and then you know often that can that intimacy can vary up and down. We've got passion which is a, the high levels of physical arousal in a relationship. Usually that's sexual arousal, you know, um, and that's why passionate love often occurs in the background of danger, you know, or adversity or frustration. Um, and then you have commitment, right, on the other, on the final side of the triangle, so which can, consists of your decision to love one another and, and, and be there together. Like, so it starts at zero, builds, but then levels off and can wave up and down. You know, and can drop rapidly if the relationship's in serious trouble. So depending on what's going on, if you have romantic love is intimacy and passion, but no commitment, right? Fatuous love is commitment and physical attraction. So the, the passion, but no intimacy, no closeness. Infatuation's passion. And I thought that was interesting to sort of think about they, you know, what's the state of the relationship between Harry and Karen, right? They look like they love each other. She says, oh, you know, it's, it's, after 13 years, I don't have much expectation re-gifts. Sounds like the passion has been reduced. Absolutely. The intimacy is there and the commitment seems to be there. They, they have a, uh, seem to have a good sense of, of what is important to them and they've, they've agreed to that and it seems like the intimacy is gone. So I, I work with young people at the moment, so adolescents and, and young adults with uh, anorexia and other eating disorders and we have a family worker so we like to work with the families um, as well as the young person and and that's really important for a whole lot of reasons when you're working with young people you know the young people usually live with their family but helping them out of a jam you know you need to look at the family system not just the individual you need the support of the family otherwise what you do in the office is only going to go so far yeah that's right you know and and families can you know act to be help help or you know present barriers or all sorts of stuff um it's 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 quite interesting to think systemically so i got to chatting with liz our um family worker and so she talked to me about like a relationship you can disagree or dislike what someone your partner likes or, or wants or believes but a good relationship is one where you kind of um, have an agreement that okay, well, that's important to that person. So, and so we're both going to do that. I, right? I so remember that, you've talked about this one before. I remember this. It's totally applicable. Yeah. yeah, you know. So, I mean, the classic thing would be, you know, someone someone believes in, um, you know, we we don't eat that type of food, or you know, we always buy the expensive type of margarine, or the, or or you know, I really believe in the environment stuff. So we're going to do washable nappies instead of disposable ones or you know it's really important to me for family time and so but you know the other person's like well i don't really get why we want to spend all this time with your family but you know i love you so we're going to do that right so it's about having that agreed sense of like this is our mission and we do it together and and they seem to have that but that 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 passion seems to have gone 
Because if you can't share what you like, you're going to have some problems. That's right. But when you really love somebody, you got to love everything about them. You got to love the crust of a motherfucker. You can't just love the white part of the bread. You got to love the crust, the crumbs, the little fucking crumbs at the bottom of the toaster. That's what the real motherfucker is. Whatever you into, your woman got to be into too. And vice versa or the shit ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. It ain't going to work. That's right. If you born again, your woman got to be born again too. If you a crackhead, your woman got to be a crackhead too. Or the shit won't work. You can't be like, I'm going to church. Where you going? Hit the pipe? That relationship ain't going nowhere. Well, two crackheads can stay together forever. She loves him and, and loves their life together. That's, that's what she says, which in that really powerful scene. And she says, you know, you've made a fool out of me. She holds, the, holds it together when, when she gets that CD. You know, she's, I think she's a bit in shock. And she's that... that powerful scene when she's alone um, but you know she's caring towards others and she's supportive and so she ends up you know addressing it with him which I thought was you know up to her credit and um, you know she she she's a bit of a self-sacrificer as well I think the reason love actually abides with me is Emma Thompson's physical performance in the bedroom wordlessly having to go through all of that this is an adult having to just take everything and keep it inside and suffer all of this and then plaster on a darling's face for the children and take them to the nativity without having it out with her husband right then and there or just saying, I'm not going, you know why. And it's not fake happiness. She's just exaggerating how happy she is and minimizing to the point of almost erasure aside from a brittle candor, especially with Harry, the fact that her world is falling apart. It's almost like an actor going, I feel terrible, but I'm just gonna whoom, mm. put on my, my on. the show must go on. Yeah. And just Emma Thompson mm. for that and that wonderful song. <sighs> it's the epitome of the keep calm and carry on. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But um, this is an adult versus a lot of others on this list who are children. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's it. I think what comes out for me in this one, and, and this, again, while the relationship itself has alarm bells ringing all over it, um, th it's the performances for this one that really carry it through for me. Yeah, You've got these A-listers is, here. Yeah, yeah. She, what she pulls off throughout the whole film, frankly. If it had been Jason Clarke playing incredible. Harry, would have been like, fuck this yeah. marriage, divorce him. What really comes across for me, what really came across for me watching it this time, is how much her reaction is based in uncertainty. So mm. what you said about the, you know, they've been together for 13 years, they, they have this, this level of commitment, she in particular has this level of commitment to their, their home, their, their children. The children take absolutely prime position in every decision she makes and every reaction she has. Her relationship with her horrible son, she sort of half mentions, there's a whole deleted sequence which actually links to another relationship mm. where her son is asked to write about Christmas and writes about a world where farts are visible as bubbles coming out of people and the school don't like it and uh, Emma Thompson's character goes outside the office of the uh, very strict patrician headmistress and Adam Godley, the guy who introduces the uh, musical talent show at the end, 
and uh, she says, I cannot, I am so angry that I put you in this school of fuddy-duddies because that is comedy genius. And so it's like her rotten son that she hasn't quite, like who really doesn't want to be an angel in this nativity, is like, oh, okay. And they kind of bond over that. And it's just like she gets another super powerful moment as a great mum. Yeah. And I feel like that, the film is detrimental as a result of that. Yeah, the, it, did, it did lose some really good deleted mm. scenes, but we again, we can talk about that later. There's a couple I'm uh, very glad weren't in there. Well, yes, there is that. She, yeah. She's very, she's very people and other other focus. She's self sacrificing, yeah. um, like her brother. She's dealing with uncertainty. She, mm. when when the things are thrown up that she does not have the full context for. She finds the necklace in his pocket, and she doesn't know what the purpose of it being there is. But she assumes reasonably that it's for her she opens the cd and realizes that she's not getting the necklace and ultimately she's jumped to a conclusion it could be that he changed his mind and took the necklace back she doesn't know that i mean she comes to the right conclusion but the point being that what she's dealing with is is bits and pieces that she doesn't know and when she has the scene where she has it out with him after the nativity that's what she says she doesn't know whether this is just you gave a necklace to someone else could i cope with that could the marriage continue after that is it that you gave the necklace to someone else that you're having sex with could i cope with that uh, or, or is, is it, it love which then love. puts a threat on the commitment that i'm putting into into this mm. family and mm. this is where the you've made a fool out of me comes in it's the i'm pouring all of this into this family if you're not doing the same it's not going to work she's had time to come around to that conclusion she's had time to think about it i think the whole going into the room and 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 crying on her own is because she doesn't know how to respond in that moment to him. She has to put it aside so that she can process it first. It's not just about the putting on the face for everyone else, although that is a huge part of it. It's that she doesn't know how she wants to react in that moment. She needs to think about it. And even the very end of their story, when he comes off, he gets off the plane, it is obvious that they have not, while they're still together, they have not repaired things yet. Mm. Well, we don't know month. whether they're ever going to be able to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a month, you know. Like, and so you sort of think about, like, well, you know, are they are these relationships static? You know, they're like we see them at the end. Are they all going to be the, the same way years down the track, or is it no? You know, actually, these things are going to evolve, and you kind of it's not quite clear where they're at. That they're still talking, and they're still kind of you know, and he genuinely cares. And I think he's sort of a t- bit taken aback by the fact that there's this young woman throwing herself at him. Mm. You know, he doesn't seem like a sleaze. Like it, that's why she, you know, she doesn't, you know, it's not like there's a pattern of behavior. And so she, Emma Thompson would be calling it straight out straight away. Yeah. You know, he seems a bit clueless. Like, I mean, would you really be dancing with your young, younger, good looking secretary at the, at the work party when mm. your wife is there? Baby, I'm too He 
seems a bit clueless. And I mean, I, the I don't woman love that you this... tell her not to worry about. Mm. Yeah, you know, like the I'd hate the trope of the the clueless male and the the, the woman chasing. Um, yeah, because it, it demonizes it, women. It, well, it's it's being yeah, said it makes men way. hate women and okay. women hate women. So that that particular yeah. relationship between Harry and Mia, Harry and Mia's interactions are uh, very superficial and very. Uh, very fake. Because they, they Mia is very superficial on and very her fake. Part. Exactly. And, Again, and I she's a child. It's been written that way very, very deliberately because uh, they did not want us to, or they, they wanted us to maintain some sympathy for Alan Rickman. If he'd been the one doing the chasing, we wouldn't mm. have been able to do that. Yeah, if it had been Colm Fior, we just hate Harry now. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's infatuation, which is, getting back to that model, it's just passion. There's no commitment. There's no intimacy and... Um, you know, he, he he owns up to it. Emma Thompson's character it gives him a chance to kind of, this is the options, which one is it? And he says, oh, I've been a fool, you know, and so it's, fool. it's, yeah, I mean, I, I don't love the, 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 the woman, woman chasing the guy trope, but, you know, it, it does happen from time to time in real life. And yeah. Um, yeah. in therapy, if you're thinking about relationships, you think about the gestalt of the relationship. So it's not one plus one equals two, right? You're thinking like the relationship is more than just the two people in it, right? You know, it, it's it's bigger than that, right? Like it, it adds up to more than that. It's like it's one plus one equals three or four, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so it's about how the relationship itself functions. School of Movies usually talks about the characters, but here we're edging into, well, how's this relationship functioning? And is this relationship working? And this is why I didn't want to put this relationship as the lowest down because it's functioning. It is functioning and it's, you know, it's hit a really big landmine, but it's still going on. And if you had this couple come into therapy, they're in a bit of trouble, but there's a lot of a lot of things that can be done here. Yeah, the relationship so, is in no way irredeemable. Yeah, and actually, honestly, I, I, I readjust that. You're right, because I have not incorporated the possibility that Kira Knightley's character, Juliet, didn't then go into her bedroom, listen to the sugar babes, and go, oh, God, about uh, Andrew Lincoln's <laughs> character, Mark, and have her own little crisis. Crisis moment, yeah. Mm. Oh, oh, speaking of music, by the way, Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell. Absolutely wonderful version in this film. On the soundtrack to Love Actually, it's the much more jaunty version. Flows and flows of angel hair And ice cream castles in the air And feathered canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that way But now they only block the sun They rain and snow on everyone That's actually not Joni Mitchell, that's the hereditary one. And I would have said that was Joan Byers. But no, it's Judy Collins doing Joan Byers. And that was the end credits of Hereditary, and that made me want to scream, Fuck you! to Ari Aster. Everything for makes daring me want to, to touch fuck that you to song. Ari Aster. <laughs> we'll just add that to the list. But that really hurt. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, that was like, do I like this movie or do I hate this movie? I hate this movie. Mm, yeah. This 2000 version sung by Joni Mitchell was the one that was on the CD soundtrack. And it's still not the one that's in Love Actually. Moons and dunes and Ferris wheels The dizzy dancing way you feel As every fairy tale comes real I've looked at love that wheel But now it's just another The, the whole Emma Thompson being about for everybody but her, we do see all these little moments throughout the film. She is everybody's mum. Yeah. She's nudging Sarah towards Carl. Liam Neeson. She's uh, helping yep. Liam Neeson with get over the, the grief of his lost wife. Yeah. There's a deleted scene where he gives a little hug from behind. I'm like, that is lascivious <laughs> to your sister. Oh, wait, hang on. Her, her brother is Hugh Grant. Mm, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wait, which Willow you... pointed out, what an amazing family. <laughs> but, but also, like... Imagine, imagine like Harry, Alan Rickman, you're married to the PM's sister yeah. and you're cheating on her. Like, dude, like, that, that is like, a fine point. <laughs> or you are a narcissist and yeah. like, uh, or, you know, have got some kind of kink for danger. I think we um, all want to thump Harry, regardless of whether we sympathize with him at all. Mm. Does, uh, there was a Colin, the uh, the backpacker. I mean, we can just tick that is off. He not, he is he a number four, fourth worst? <laughs> what? Uh, Colin the God of Sex. Colin Fristle. See, I, I kind of had this out in a, on a limb on its own because to me, I can't even look at this as a relationship. Colin is delusional. <laughs> yeah, you theorised that Colin got just didn't even make it to uh, yeah, America and this is just a fever dream on the plane. Asleep, and this is his like, dream what on I the get, way I'm there. I've got to meet three gorgeous girls who'll think I'm amazing. Yeah, for a start, mm. if you're flying... Right, this is a really practical thing, but if you're flying from the UK to um, uh, that area of America, you're not landing at Milwaukee, you're landing in Chicago. There's a big sign Milwaukee. that says Milwaukee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then they say the house, you know, they say, oh, we've only got one bed, but there's all these Christmas lights on outside. It's like, guys, just cut back on the Christmas lights and buy another bed. Yeah. That's look, lying. Look. This is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it wasn't even real, Alex. Um, I know. The, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, honestly, as, as, like, the, the thing that bugs me is Colin shouldn't be kind of right, but he kind of is because British people don't think I'm awesome. American and Canadian people are a bit more intrigued by the refined yeah. British person. 
Yes, oh, but you're not getting on a plane with a backpack full of condoms. Yes, that's yeah. true. <laughs> you said, like, what, what exactly? Not what a customer's going to say to him when he gets there. Sir, you do know we have condoms in America, right? 56 condoms? Yes, some of that, my son. <laughs> no, I would Magnum say, size, be- and he's got a big knob. Sorry. I used to do a um, community radio and uh, they had like a little call sign thing and it was like you can but now buy condoms with like big size sounding names it's like and then you hear this voice saying oh you dropped something it's like what's that it's like the Hindenburg it's like oh yes the only kind I use so, uh, so your your penis is going to fall down and explode <laughs> hey if you're into it um, I'm going to wear a Titanic tonight okay back to Colin Asperg right ahead <laughs> sorry <laughs> Um, I'm so sorry. Crashes into uh, it, falls down and dies. Um, yeah, so look, look, he went travelling uh, and uh, that's all I, you know, so he, he did have a character arc. Um, <laughs> it's like he opened a cereal box and four gorgeous girls fell out, plus Denise Richards, who's also gorgeous, for his friend to enjoy, like an eclair. <laughs> I mean, the, 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 there is truth to the, 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 you know, you go traveling and you're a foreigner and people find you more interesting. And, um, yeah. So, and I've, I remember being at Union, there was this British guy who ended up hooking up with, you know, he was, he wasn't anything special and hooked up with someone absolutely gorgeous and was like, was convinced it was to do with being foreign. So, you know, maybe it's possible. Margot Robbie I feel like was in uh, uh, about time, so I'm assuming back in Australia, people were like, oh, Margot Robbie, get out of here, you nong. But uh, in England, suddenly she's gorgeous. Was she? Was she what? In about time. Yes, she was. She was the one that he was like, could we do oh, anything? And she yes. was like, oh, if only you'd asked me earlier. And then he asked yeah. her earlier and she says, let's wait yeah. till the end of the summer. Yeah. <laughs> I almost had Barbie. <laughs> Throw a shrimp right, on look. that. Oh my God. Don't call it your shrimp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who to feel worse for in that equation. Bloody... Margot Robbie. Or, or Donald Gleeson. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Anyway, sorry, Hunter, continue. <laughs> Why am I the one running this? Um, See, this is the, the stuff uh... that uh, uh, cinema therapy didn't touch. No one compared Margot Robbie to a uh, barbecue. <laughs> oh dear, I think you're running this, Hunter, because Alex didn't get a lot of sleep last night. That is true. <laughs> Slightly I, uh, delirious. I am bringing a slight delirium. Conversation. <laughs> So on my on the moderate list, I had either Billy Mac and Joe, so that's the the rocker and the manager. Yep, they were we just underneath about, Colin for me. Or we could talk about the PM. No, no, no. And go, Natalie. Go, go, uh, let's let's uh, go on, with Billy Mac and Joe. Billy Mac and Joe. Billy. Well, honestly, I I think that David and Natalie, the PM, is more problematic. But Billy Mac and Joe won't take us long, so go for it. I think they've got a good relationship in that they understand each other. There are frequent boundary crossings and microaggressions towards the manager, belittles him on air, and he he does things that are deliberately counterproductive to both their stated aim of being financially successful. There's also, this turns up in repeated relationships here, a power imbalance. Billy's calling the shots because he's the money earner. Mm. It's not all bad for Joe because he's done well. Like, you go to that house, that house is looking pretty good and there's I freeze-framed it and he's drinking Bollinger champagne. Also, Bailey's at the same time? I'm just like, what's... I don't know. You've what, never had a bowl, Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Please tell me that's not a thing. We used to do with Bailey's was a cement mix, and you take a shot of Bailey's mm. and a shot of lime cordial. Oh. And, and, and you would swish it around in your mouth. It was called a concrete mixer. That's horrible. It's, I have it's, tried it's, mixing uh, Bailey's with lemonade before. I took one sip and threw the rest away. Okay. You have just sobered me up, sir. <laughs> Continue. I will stop messing around. So, 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 look, the manager's reliable and he's tolerant. I felt like it was more of a parent-child relationship. The manager clearly loves him, thinks of the world of him, and sets limits as a constant support. And the singer's kind of like a rebellious teen. He comes home to spend time with the family. The, the relationship's good, but the day in and day out could be improved. That's that's kind of where I landed. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, ultimately, the, the Billy's position in this film is that he's... He's trying to claw back a last uh, 15 minutes of fame. He's had his time. He wants another shot. He's very honest about how he feels. He is very upfront about why they're doing this. Even in interviews where you, he's, he knows he's expected to, to give some kind of commercial and professional line, which he refuses to do. Uh, Billy, I understand you've got a prize for our competition winners. Yes, I have, Antor Deck. It's a, it's a personalised felt-tip pen. So if you believe in Father Christmas, children, like your Uncle Billy does, buy my festering turd of a record. Uh, he's honest about the fact that he's lonely. Um, and I think that he's, when he comes back to talk to Joe at the end, he says, I was at this party, everybody was throwing themselves all over me, but I realised that I wanted to be with you because you're the person who's been with me through thick and thin through all of this. And mm. I, I also, I really like the the ambiguous note that this kind of ends on because Billy is a very flirty person. He is, he, he generally throughout the film flirts with women and men. And I, it would not surprise me in the slightest if there was a degree of attraction on his part towards Joe. Well, he's modelled on he's like ever... Bowie style exactly, and yeah. androgyny and uh, uh, maybe not necessarily androgyny, but certainly flexibility. Yeah, the implication for me is that it could be that this is just two men who've had a platonic connection their entire lives that's been very strong and ultimately they both realise that's more important to them than any other mm. sexual options that are mm. available. Or... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it could be that this is the seed for something late in life to bloom, um, yeah. and and that there's there's the 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 potential for that to happen. Although but it the... doesn't it doesn't matter. They've got the commitment. No. They've got the intimacy. That it's there's the potential for passion to be there as well. But in this moment and for this Christmas, it no. that's it doesn't and, matter which way it goes. And and. And I said, like, I mean, I read it as platonic and, but, you know, you know, when you work as a therapist with people and there's no passion there, but depending on what's gone on for you as a client and if you've never had someone reliable who is caring, but also sets limits and, and stuff like that, people often will fantasize about their therapist or think that they love their therapist because they're not used to, they've got an undeveloped sense of relationships, right? And so Billy's kind of flirting or kind of the potential weird sexual dynamic there, like the, the unusual sexual dynamic for them in, that would be new could actually just be him working through the fact that, oh, hang on, I actually, you know, this guy's really important to me. And, yeah. you know, but he normally you know, maybe most of his relationships are sort of sexual and transactional. And so therefore that's 
the currency or the or the way that it works for him. Mm. I read it as platonic, and you know, I love a good awkward hetero male hug. Like, you know, like <laughs> none of this. I'm confident in my the modern. I'm confident in myself, and you and me can be over affectionate straight males and give each other a good hug you know it's like there's just no better representation of the fragility of ma- heterosexual masculinity on screen than the uncomfortable touching of two straight males so uh. <laughs> the way that that scene is pitched the whole you know thank you for being here there all my life it's been an honor it make always makes me feel like they're on the fucking titanic and they're about, <laughs> they're to, go, about to go this down. is the last <laughs> night together doing anything like symbolically this was his 15th minute of fame like this this ridiculous 16th minute he's stolen this (laughs) he's come back for this um and so it is just kind of a decline from here most likely but i I do like how pally they are with each other and when i was young and successful i was greedy and foolish and now i'm left with no one wrinkled and alone (laughs) wow Uh, thanks for that bill for what? Well, for actually giving a real answer to a question. It doesn't often happen here at Radio Watford, I can tell you. Ask me anything you like, I'll tell you the truth. That DJ is Marcus Brigstock, who is a UK comedian slash presenter slash writer and sometime political activist, uh, who's really fucking funny. So I, I recommend check out Planet Cordroy that he, he uh, did way before Brexit, but it kind of it shows like where Britain was on the approach to Brexit. My next door neighbour reads the Daily Mail. His name's David and he's a prick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, just, he gets excited by the idea that I do, uh, I do work for the BBC. I, I do stuff on Radio 4 and he, he, he gets so excited, in fact, that he forgets that he hates my politics. So he comes and finds me, because I heard the show last night, I tuned in, listened, heard the whole thing, absolutely brilliant, apart from your bit, complete rubbish, but well done, keep going. So, you know, I, I enjoy, enjoy winding him up. You know, the, the last time I saw him, I said, uh, I said, actually, David, I was thinking of doing a big piece all about immigration, and it was interesting, because I could hear his anus healing over. <laughs> Fascinating. Just that much tension in his lower body. The moment I said immigration, just... Just sealed up completely, like an action man, perfectly smooth, with the same panicky eagle eyes as, oh God, no, not immigration. I said, yeah, David, you know me, Specky Corduroy wearing liberal. I'm very much open the gates, let them come, fill the country with them as far as I'm concerned, the more the merrier. We could actually meet some of these people, imagine that. And he's doing that thing that people do, you know when you're talking but you're not quite being serious enough for them to physically attack you. It's what people do with bouncers, you know. (laughs) That kind of, he was going, <laughs> yes, no, no, God.
I've actually got David and Natalie as being more problematic. I, I have uh, Karen and Harry at the, t- at the top, which I would now like to adjust. So that's Juliet and Mark at the top, Sarah and Carl, and then as you say, Karen and Harry, that does actually make more sense uh, coming after those two. But I've got David and Natalie there for the power imbalance, like I mentioned before. Uh, Natalie is practically defenseless regarding what this, the most powerful man in England, can do to her life. And it's kind of painted as a Cinderella story slash pretty woman. I I think I can kind of go with them being less problematic because of the way the relationship develops. And if you look at them purely as two individuals who meet and interact with each other, it's great. The the, the, um, back and forth. Yeah, they talk like human beings. She's obviously very confident in herself as a person. Yeah. The difficulty that I had is how do you extricate that from the inescapable fact that he is the prime minister of the country? This isn't just class. Yeah. <laughs> like he, he is in the political class. He is heading up the political Absolutely. class. And the political class exists above and outside of the upper middle class, higher class. Like they, they are fucking aliens compared yeah. to everyone there's, else. There's, I was reading a, an article about um, one of the things that I'm going to talk about later, and somebody mentions. One of the best bits of the film for them is watching Hugh Grant, and I quote, dance around his mansion. That is not a mansion. Yeah. That is the workplace of the leader of the UK. Yeah. <laughs> it is a great moment. It, I love it that. Is. Although, also, the, again, on the uh, this accursed CD soundtrack, they have the new cover version of uh, Jump, but not the original, which yeah. is way better. But apparently only in the UK. The US got the original Pointer Sisters version that you just heard. UK, Girls Aloud, which is in the movie when he's racing to the nativity. But this is what soundtracks do. They go, hey, do you like that song? I know, it's a classic. Would you like it if contemporary artists did it instead? Now, the Pointer Sisters version came out in 1984 and was described in this 2003 movie as a golden oldie. That's after 19 years. Well, the Girls Aloud version is thus 20 years old now and a golden oldie. You told me. The second best Hugh Grant dance team on film. The oh, best which one. Which is the first again? Oh, we're uh, thinking Paddington. I've forgotten. If he Paddington. Does. How? How he he was robbed that he didn't get an Oscar just for oh, that. Oh yeah, so like he does like a song and dance routine in prison, oh. pink prison garb at the end. Oh, brilliant! He's so great at playing villains. See also <laughs> Dungeons good. and Dragons: Honor Among Thieves, where he is wickedly good. Um. So we've got a woman who is. Uh, attracted to her boss. So it's not dissimilar to the Mia Harry situation. Mm. So why is it okay? Well, for starters, he's not married, but 
they have a they have a connection, right? They they have a frisson. So they've got that. There's that passion. There's that physiological arousal, and they've got um and they've got a bit of intimacy, right? Um, you know, because they kind of know each other a little bit, and even though there's that big big power dynamic, um, he pushes her away, right? You know, and I'm like, and he seems to be socially awkward. And, you know, so I was like, you know, thinking about it, I was like, well, maybe he's driven to succeed, you know, and that's probably to help compensate for his own insecurity, you know, and, um, you know, you see that insecurity when he's, you know, a couple of times, you know, his, his hands, but also like when dealing with the US president, but then he overcomes that insecurity when he kind of has to, like he becomes his self-sacrificing kicks in. He becomes a fantasy version of a prime minister of Great Britain. Like there has never yeah. been a prime minister like this. Well, look, I mean, can we? T- maybe we need to talk about the relationship between England and the in the USA. Because I mean, got a few hours. That's, that's the worst relationship in this film. <laughs> that's true. Billy Bob Thornton, well, by the way, seems oh. to be playing an amalgamation of George W. George. Bush and Bill Clinton. Yeah. He's smooth yeah. rather than stupid. Yeah. The US president is married and then is hitting, like he says, he's married. You know, there's a mention that he's married and then he's hitting on this. There's, young there's woman some Lewinsky in this, definitely, which feels dated. Oh, uh, yeah. That's it. But, you know, and like, and that was kind of coming around, was that the war of terror era and mm. America kind of really, you know, I think people watching it now don't understand that, but that era, you know, there was a, a lot of. A lot of sort of angst about America trouncing the world and kind of everyone having to toe the line of what they wanted to do. England backed uh, them up for the Second Gulf War, whereas yes. France said no, and America decided to performatively hate France. Yeah, well, I mean, Australia, Australia, Fuck French uh, fries—they're uh, freedom fries now. I thought so. I just well, I mean, checked, but the um, the famous dress that Monica Lewinsky um, got brought up—is it on show in the British it's, it's Museum? In, it's in the Smithsonian. I, I, I was just, joking. I can't even. I just. Um, but it's. Are it's, you kidding? No. Well, uh, no. Uh, maybe the dress Google's that rocks lying the world. to me. Maybe it was a joke article. I don't it, know. But okay, it better be it next is. to the Furby that was banned from the White House. <laughs> but the, the um, my my the point I was going to make was it's a, a a sort of a quite a neat navy blue smart long sleeve dress, which is one of the things that. Uh, Natalie is wearing in the movie. In fact, I think it's what uh, she's wearing when she is somewhat soiled. The president. <laughs> it's not subtle, Richard. We can see what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it's it was it's 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 a nice moment. He stands up to the to the the U.S. president, but it was, it's and um, but uh, you know what I was thinking about was like he's similar to Emma Thompson, so which is his sister. You know, he kind of he when he realizes that he needs to stand up for someone close to him then he overcomes his insecurity, right? And 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 kind of acts on that. Um, I openly laughed at the bit where he's like, Britain is a small country. It's like, I'm like, you guys are pretty up there. Uh, you guys have a nuclear weapons. Um, not a small country, a lot of power. In terms um, of size, though, we, we have little man syndrome extraordinaire. My God, we're, we we're bark tiny. so loud. <laughs> We're smaller than New Zealand. We demand so much special <laughs> treatment. We've got Harry Potter. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I'm I'm living in one of your colonies, so you know, yeah, it's, um, I know. it's uh, anyway. Yeah, in terms of global influence, no, we are not small. Yeah, yeah the, the king is still the head of state in Australia, so you know. I thought it was interesting. Like he, uh, my he, oh, 
chasing you around Australia with a bit of wood on fire. Got so far into it. So I was about to explain why I was interested. No, I believe you. I believe you. It's just the word. (laughs) When I was talking to our family worker, she talked about for a relationship to succeed, you you need to be able to be safe and secure and in order to be vulnerable, right? Yes. And so he doesn't make himself vulnerable. In fact, he pushes her out of the uh, office, which mm. is Without awful. talking to her is the thing that bothers no, me. No, without talking to her. And, like, you know, you know, doesn't say get her a similarly high-paying job elsewhere. But Also, his secretary uh, or whoever's running the uh, uh, 10 down the street is like, I think that's a pretty sizable ass. Uh, that's so venomous coming from another woman. And Jesus extremely Christ. unprofessional. The character's named Annie. She's played by Nina Sosanya, whom I remember from Nathan Barley. Also, she's Will Perry's mother in the BBC His Dark Materials. And I felt that they missed, they missed a trick there where they could have... You know, a bit later on, someone else brings him, a, you know, a cup of tea and a biscuit. Mm. And, that you know, it's an older woman. And what they should have done is they should have had, uh, you know, a equally attractive, more attractive young woman Mia. come in and him to be, <laughs> yeah, Mia, and, and him to be, you know, not even look at her. Like, that would have been a, a much more... Honestly, yeah, yeah actually yeah. should have been Mia then. Because otherwise it yeah. makes it look like we had to assign someone's grandmother to bring you your tea and biscuits yeah. because yeah. you, sir, are a lech, look which at this. not. Bridge troll. <laughs> That's <laughs> just unfair to the poor tea lady. Yeah, he so, might be so, a granny shagger. He is now. Yeah, it sounds like he's. <laughs> Speaking of uh, scandal, by the way, around about the Lewinsky time, Hugh Grant was involved in his own kind of scandal in the nineties. What was her name? Divine um, Brown. Divine Brown, that's mm. it. His relationship with Natalie, it, it's frozen and then it, it unfreezes because he decides to be, you know, to, to make himself vulnerable. Mm. Why they didn't just go straight to call HR and go work out where she lived. But anyway, um, it was a good scene. He's going to go so. house to house and hope well, for the best. It's, it's Christmas I Eve. It. I, chances are everyone else has gone home. It's a fun grand gesture <laughs> and there's several of these I, in this film. Mm. But also, also like at the end, like where they're all taking photographs, right? So there's no camera phones back in 2003. Mm. So like the SAS yeah. could have just could have gone and taken all the cameras yeah. off all the people in the audience, and and it would never have happened. But, um, but you know, I think like well, the point is, is he's think- he's saying it's okay that I am having this potentially sexual relationship with this lower class woman mm. who she, he says at the beginning three illegitimate but charming children. I'm like you patronizing. I didn't get the class element to it, right? Like, ah, I, I, I'm not aware of that. It's like, heavy. That, right. It's, it's not. Uh, Martin like, McCutcheon was in EastEnders, which is a very South London type uh, show. It's, that, honey, it's East London. It's in the name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, but East London is close to South London. Oh, yeah, it's like Dagenham. Uh, okay, I, I relinquish my Englishness. I'm going to Canada. Geography was not your strong point. I'm so there, sorry. Uh, but yeah, okay, it's it's totally there. But he 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 pretty much says you must live on a council estate. Or so. She she does say and again, again. I'm going to come back to this later. But she does say at one point that she lives in Wandsworth, the, the dodgy, dodgy end. end. Wandsworth apparently doesn't have a dodgy end. Maybe not now. Gentrification. <laughs> so no, I, I live at the dodgy end of Buckinghamshire. If you worked in the PM's office, you'd know that mail would get read 
by other people. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like fun fact, she misspells Christmas um, on the card. I discovered in my, doing my research for the. Does she leave the, the T um, out? Christmas is spelt with uh, a C, Baldrick. I think she misses the R out. I think okay. it's kiss. Christmas. Christmas. Um, Ooh, um, maybe that was a subtle hint. If she knew oh, people were going to read no, it. No, wait, wait. It's Sismus, which she's giving Sismus. him a subtle sigh. <laughs> I'm not sure of what. One of them is trans. She makes herself vulnerable. He then, in turn, makes himself vulnerable. Yeah. And things seem to start. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, once, like I said, once they're interacting as two people rather than prime minister mm, and employee. Right, yeah. When it becomes it, not about their is, jobs. I, it's really sweet. Which and I, I think like is the point the way of they this interact. One. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, I, 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 I like that one. So, I and mean, that's, that's why it was not the worst because it's, it's, we don't, it's the beginning of something yeah. rather than, rather than sort of the midpoint or the end. Absolutely. And there's a um, there is a joke sequel to this from 2017, which was just a little trailer that they did for comic relief. Uh, comic relief, which Richard Curtis has always been involved. Absolutely, with. Um, and they revisit a, a few of the relationships to see how they've come along. And David and Natalie are married. Somehow he's been re-elected as the prime minister, which I didn't think could even happen. But anyway, we had three prime ministers in a week last year. <laughs> At this point, everybody in the country is just getting to take a turn. I'm Prime Minister right now. <laughs> I, I had to stop just to record this. Um, but yeah, so, so clearly the, the outcome that Curtis had in mind for that one is, yes, it goes the distance, which is nice. Yep, yep. So much fat shaming, though. Um... Side note on Comic Relief, there was one bit again that got cut out where Richard Curtis, having been to Africa repeatedly on aid-related quests, wanted to show a side of Africa that was not just horrendous poverty and fly-blown people and just go, you know, get rid of your assumptions about people who live in these arid conditions. It was just two ladies walking along, big bundles of sticks, and they're just talking about their uh, significant others and grumbling about them, just to kind of make it feel like, oh, actually, that, you know, this... The, these normal-ish relationships are all kind of messy and they're all kind of out there being experienced by everyone. I feel like that should have been left in. Mm, yeah, maybe. There's also a farmer looking at his crops which have not grown and then his wife approaches and says in uh, Senegalese, I believe, like, you know, it's it's okay. We'll, we'll move. If we have to move, we have to move. And he's like, nah, okay, as long as I've got your love. And it's 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 sweet. It is at the same time kind of, no, his life is ruined. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for, from Curtis's perspective, he was at least trying to offset a little bit of what he helped make people's prevailing view of Africa as a continent was mostly Ethiopia in distress. I mean, I It'll thought you like, were going to say right. something else about the fat shaming, but I think the bottom line is, it's shit, don't do it. Yeah, I mean, the <laughs> film's thesis is supposed to be, it's shit, don't do it. He, mm. he said, I've got legs like big tree trunks. It's like, that's just a mean dude. It's like your daughter works in the worked in the prime minister's office the prime minister has just come to the door like shut it like i mean anyway it's a lot of legs but they carry that through right to the end not only does her father call her plumpy when she jumps and he catches her at the airport he says my god you weigh a lot jesus christ i only caught that when i was looking up the quotes and i'm like are you really 
just one more one more for the road. This yeah. is where Richard Curtis can't tell the difference between we're putting this in because these people are awful and we got a laugh out of this joke. I'm going to do it again. Indeed. Even yeah. though it actually says this man is awful. When Emma Thompson's daughter says, I'm playing first lobster. And Emma Thompson says, there was more than one lobster at the nativity. And her daughter goes, duh. I was like, at that point, Emma Thompson, go, please don't say duh to your mother. <laughs> I, I, you know, get, credit me with a little more than that, child. What you're talking is utter bollocks. Josh with the kid and say, oh, I'm sorry, if you come up with bollocks, I'm going to question it. Aurelia and Jamie? Yes, they were next on my list, principally because it's the same fucking story. It's a Cinderella story. There's a power imbalance. His job requires her to wait on him hand and foot. Only this time, rather than there being a class barrier, there's a language barrier. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, there's a power differential. I mean, I think this was the relationship that when I watched the movie years back, I was. this is the one that was the, felt the most problematic for oh, right. me. Because I was it's, like, it's don't clearly talk. slipped uh, into less problematic since it's this low down. Yeah, like so, like you know, because I was just like, well, how can you have a relationship with someone if you don't talk? Like, how is this possible? This is make believe. You know, um, you know, twenty, you know, twenty something year old Hunter was like, oh, this is stupid. Um, <laughs> did you um, talk like that? <laughs> Uh, look, I, I think I probably did. Yeah, I was probably opinionated and stupid, whereas now I'm just opinionated and stupid and older. But um, <laughs> yeah, the uh, it's not as good as Padme and Anakin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, doesn't, he did, Jamie doesn't like sand. That's right. Um, <laughs> I don't like eels. Oh, side note, by the way, him falling in the pond or, or clumsily trying to jump in to, to to help get his manuscript back. That is, I didn't realize until this most recent uh, viewing. It's Mr. Darcy, played by Colin Firth in the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice, leaping into the pond, which uh, made a young willow shriek, It's full of frog wee! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the producers were like, you know, there was someone on staff that said, Richard, Colin's got to go in the water. He's got to. Just just trust us. It'll work. It's going to be good for the grocers, right? Yeah. Yeah, but I I was kind of like, they've kind of got passion and intimacy right like there is something about the energy that someone has right you know it's it's not ust unresolved sexual tension you can like someone without really knowing much about them Mm. right and um and so this has just got the added layer of language but also but then you know if they're around each other you know you would potentially you know, you kind of get to know whether you like someone or not. Yeah. Whereas, like having a housemate or something, or you know, you, you, some people you click with and some people you don't. Yeah. If you're I, sitting I with the, someone and they're looking at you like she looks at him, you yeah. think, "Oh the, my god, this, she is so not just pretty, but actually seems to have a magnetic aura around her yeah. at this point." I, I think there's some crucial elements to this as well that make this one of the the better relationships for me. And you're absolutely right about the energy hunter, and part of that comes from um, that there is a state of 
just being able to be with somebody in a companionable silence, which yeah. it mm. is, it, it feels so much better than sitting and chatting with somebody that you don't connect with at all. Also, it's so easily um, solvable by just learning another language, which, which yeah, is which your way of getting to. to know somebody. Yeah, yeah, through indeed. their culture. And and again, the fact that he learns por- or starts learning Portuguese and she Bad. starts learning English, yeah. it, it's coming from both sides. Yeah, that's so that a healthy expressing that yeah. it is mutual and that's important. Oh. There's the body language that they start to pick up on in each other as well, which is a really crucial part of, of um, uh, communication. But also, and I think this is pretty fundamental, even though Jamie doesn't understand what Aurelia is saying, mm. we do. The audience knows what she's talking about because we get the subtitles. So yeah. we know this is not a born sexy yesterday situation. This is not a he adores her because she doesn't know enough English to contradict In fact, yeah, the subtitles either. are telling us that they are actually simpatico. Yeah, they're, they're sparring. They just don't know it. <laughs> yeah. Those are the shrieking it- eels. Sorry, I know. It's, <laughs> I always like that that kind of comedy where they're, you know, the the characters are saying the same thing to each other. You know, the, you know, the the, the he can't hear the grenade went off right by his ear. I can't hear you. The grenade went off right by my ear. Nice. Like you know, um, I, I do you know, like the it, way she uses mime to ask him about his book. Like that, some of that may have made its way into Tiger's Eye, where my whole implication was these two people cannot speak each other's languages, but they're going to make one up in order to communicate. Yeah. Through my work as a psychologist, I've worked a lot with interpreters, so people non-English speaking, um, so we call them uh, culturally and linguist- linguistically diverse or cold communities. And um, and from time to time, I would get, particularly when I was working uh, in oncology, um, patients could come through and you know they were isolated and then you know they, they were unwell and 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 you know i remember working with uh, a woman who w- didn't speak english and and you know um v- very very limited english and her and like and we would have an interpreter but there'd be moments where the interpreter wasn't there for whatever reason or, or didn't you know we were waiting on the interpreter and something and it was quite clear that we you know there was a it was a mutual relationship there that that you know that was formed on mutual respect and kind of like you know we kind of just liked each other like you know there was there was that you know there was something so like i think it you know i mean it wasn't obviously a romantic relationship but you know i think these things can happen and you see i think you see it in in kindergarten and stuff like that you know kids that don't really they don't have a lot of language but they they will play with you know one kid but not another kid that kind of thing so you know i think it's real I, i just a couple of things that bug me right don't make a public proposal men just don't do it it's entrapment <laughs> like mm-hmm. he goes to the like yeah, because if, like if a, she says no she's not getting any tips that night <laughs> no oh, we wanted it, proper dinner theater we wanted a yes that's it i mean the only time i've seen it not work right is in working girl with meg ryan mm-hmm. and El- Oh, uh, love Simon. There's a, a an awful public declaration, which yeah. def- like that is very much a don't do this. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Working girls, Melanie Griffiths, I think. Yeah. So who did I say? I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, Meg. Oh yeah. Same I've even typed Meg Ryan. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> and maybe just go on a date rather than propose. Like, mm. <laughs> like well, just, again, this like, is the big grand romantic gestures that uh, that make a film. Mm. Timeless classics. Uh, I, I think. Most people don't do this kind of thing, principally because yeah. most dudes are not this romantic. Mm. In fact, if anything, dudes are not romantic enough. 
Yeah, you know, like, and, and so that's fatuous love, right? Which is commitment and physical attraction with no intimacy. But, but they seem to have a bit of intimacy. So, yeah. um, and no, no, she didn't get fat jokes, but her sister did. So, you know, that's, um, oh, I God, guess, yeah. past. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, um, my my other beef with this particular relationship is that Jamie is clearly having a midlife crisis. Oh my god, yeah. Because so, this is this is sparked off by the unhealthiest relationship of all of them, which is that his brother is having an affair with his unnamed girlfriend. Yes. That's interfamilial. That is something that's so unhealthy because every time you look at your brother, you fuck my girlfriend. I remember yeah, now. Exactly. Like, and it's that not, stays with you. You can't just go there, fuck man. those people yeah, and, and, and walk out of their lives. It's not even as if it's just a case of I'm dating this girl and she's also dating my brother behind my back. They live together. They live together in, I might add, a very, very nice house. Something's going south on that. Was she supposed to also be Mia? Uh, originally, the intention this was... This poor woman would have been murdered in the street in real life. Yes, indeed. Like, she just yeah. walks out and goes, I'm, I'm glad I'm in this new movie, Love Actually. Oh, I'm being murdered. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, the, the, as, as an Australian, the, the idea of, like, you know, escaping to 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 France to write a... Like, oh, wow, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you just, yeah. I but, yeah, so, so his bad. girlfriend's having a fling with his brother, so he decides to go off to France to write a novel, which means that whatever job he's got, he can put on hold for the duration of time that it takes to write a novel, which means that... And he does it the old-fashioned way, turning it into paper via typewriter. Yeah, and then, hide, you know, stacking it under a mug. Dude, bad idea. Get yourself a stone or something, please. Neil Breen can tell you that. Things get <laughs> spilled on. They really do. He only types things out there and then so writes. Just just don't. It's, put a, it on a, memory it's a cinematic screen. affectation it written by overzealous screenwriters. It was 2003. You could have had word, dude. You could have had word. You could have had word. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the, the, um, the end thing with the brother, though, when Jamie goes to his family for Christmas, it's everyone's like pissed off at him for suddenly deciding that he wants to be with Aurelia and walking out. But at no point is it addressed that probably one of the reasons he chooses to walk out is his brother who fucked his girlfriend, is stood at the back of that crowd of family. That's not going to be a fun lunch. No, it's not. Even if he stays, that's not going to go well. I hate Uncle Jamie! Uncle Jamie hates your dad. There we go. Hi, Huey, Dewey, Louie. Fuck off. (laughs) The, um... Back on back on back on the typewriter. The um, I heard these comedians in, in in on the radio in Melbourne years and years ago, and they were like they wanted to do like the give give monkeys typewriters and you know see if you get. <laughs> Yeah. What's that? They're right. fleeing at us. And, typewriters, and they, sir, and they and, hurt. And and they said, and they said, they said they could get the monkeys. It was getting the typewriters was really. Hard. <laughs> That's brilliant. They had to consult eBay, brilliant. and they're all well, collectors. Okay, items let's now. face yeah. it. The modern version of this is get your cat to run back and forwards across your keyboard, and uh, eventually okay. it will write. No, the no, you just give uh, uh, twenty monkeys twenty iPhones. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> So the and, What's anyway, that they're flinging at us. Have a guess. But the, the, I mean, and, and it is it's reminiscent of that um, for weddings. You know, with the, with the, with the, uh, she falls in love or like likes the deaf guy, even mm. though mm. You know, she can't speak, but she likes the energy. So yeah. and again, she yeah, learns his language. language. Yeah, yeah, that would be mice. <laughs> Tolls of mistakes. Um, yeah. yeah. So that I mean that's all I had of on those two. Yeah, um, that's that's all we really uh, need. Uh, we've got 
a couple more. Jack and Judy, that's the lovely Martin Freeman and the uh, the lady with a very broad Welsh accent who barely gets to speak, but she's very charming. Um, this one's really quick. The, the entire setup is, and I wrote this down, the girl I work with is nice, but I'm shy, and so is she. The fact that we simulate sex doesn't affect our responses to each other. Yep. Yep, I think it's 14 minutes in and you get to see her breasts, and then 24 minutes in you get to see more nudity. <laughs> I think I saw Martin Freeman's balls yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I couldn't work out if we were seeing, was it, um, what does Daenerys say, the, the pillars or the, or the stones or something? I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Me too. Or I'm like squinting going, is that just like a shadow on her leg or am I actually looking at Martin Freeman's cock? Yeah, no, no, no that's uh, Bilbo Taint. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to um, bring a towel. I, I, look, these, these, this was in the good category for me. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. They can be, albeit uh, coquettishly and evasively. Yeah, but they, Very they, they have a good relationship. Why do they have a good relationship? Because they talk the most yes. out of everyone. Yeah, I've right. got that. The development of their relationship is through talking and not physicality. They even state at the end when they're at the airport might finally get a shag. They have not leapt straight into physical passion. Yeah. The so, idea that she's like, oh, sex, that's, that's not... Like, the idea that she hasn't become jaded by having to be bummed for most of her acting career. Yeah. Also, like, how... To, if you're supposed to simulate sex... It surely shouldn't be the... Dum, bum, 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 well, no, because bum, the, the, the point of the stand-in yeah. is they're not going to be filmed having sex. They are there so that they can set up the lighting and make sure that everything's oh, correctly. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what the, the point of them being there is. That's why they keep doing this thing where they swap them out and bring the actors in. Oh, right. I so thought they, they were like they butt got, doubles. No, they're, they're effectively like... They're props. They're there just so that they can... Do, so that um, Kira Knightley doesn't have to go through the indignity of standing there while people check light levels on her tits. But we got white people, they need to go to Bone Town. <laughs> yeah, things will things will flare if we don't get this In, right. By but, the way, 2003, like say goodbye to those kinds of scenes. Yeah. You aren't going to be seeing many of Definitely them in the not. cinema. But the, the there's loads of little moments between them that just show this relationship building over time and there's some really nice little interactions. Oh, it's like, building. Oh. Um it, the, at the very beginning when uh, Tony asks uh, Jack to fondle uh, the breasts. Judy's breasts. Fondle the breasts. Um, he asks her for permission before he does so. And, and and like when she goes to take her clothes off, in spite of the fact that he's going to see her completely in the nip in a moment, mm. he turns away to give her some privacy for the actual disrobing part. It's really yeah. respectful. And I, I really, I would almost say this was the best one for me. Yeah, yeah, I was. I, I had them as number one. Um, uh, I was. Uh, that's that's sort of what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, honestly, yeah. Uh, I'm. I'm gonna say, the only reason I put the next two, there's a hidden one. Yes, which you might not know about Hunter. So this is a little unfair. But the only reason that I put Daniel and Sam slightly above this is because they are both dealing with something horrendous, something unthinkable, which means that them getting on at all. And being able to get past this is much more of an achievement than just, I like my co-worker. So mm. there is, this is hard-won healthiness. Mm. Even mm. though there are some weirdly stalkerish, creepy-ish kind of like 
things going on between the boy and the girl. Yeah, I would say for this, and I'm I'm exactly the same. I've got Daniel and Sam at the top. There is a difference between Daniel and Sam's relationship and, and Sam, Sam and, and Joanne's relationship. relationship. Is this the uh, the uh, quad uh, that you were thinking about? You've missed one. Oh shit! It's, right. it's Daniel, Sam, and the Joannas, right? Because that Joe. That's a very fine point. Yeah. Right, so we've got Sam and Joe, right? Yeah. Um, got Daniel and Sam, and we've got Daniel and Joe, the, the late wife. Oh my God, I never noticed that. And Richard Curtis, in About Time, the wife is called Mary and the mum is called Mary. They even, they Stop even doing this. No, they, they do actually say it when they're on the sofa, when he tells, his, uh, when he tells Daniel that um, her name's Joanna and he raises his eyebrows and Sam says, yeah, same as mum. And she's unattainable because she's heaven. Oh my God. But he God. does say he was in love with her before his mum died, <laughs> although that doesn't necessarily mean it was before she got sick. Okay. So, Daniel and Joanna, right? So strong Which enough. Joanna, the, the uh, late wife, right? Okay. Um, it was their relationship was strong, right? Yeah. It was strong enough because they could talk about and joke about death, right? And I've worked yeah, in oncology. That is a really strong mark. And I can tell you that that being able to talk about dying is a really important thing, uh, and to be you know, and some people can't do it, and they're avoidant and and. That's the way that they have always lived their life. And so no judgment for, you know, anyone listening, you know, no judgment if that's the way, you know, you can't do it, it's too painful or whatever. But a marker of being able to talk about it and, and to joke a little bit about it is, is, is a sign that that's a good relationship. It's strong, right? Um, and, you know, it's clear that they talked about the funeral because there was a music selection by her. Did you note what film... Titanic. The, yes. What does it say about the relationship with his wife, his late wife, that um, he suggests we, we need to watch Titanic? Mm. What does that say about love? It's the, uh, the, the Titanic film is about the selflessness, about Jack's character not trying to bargain his way out of, of certain death to preserve Rose rather than, I said this on the Titanic show folks you're gonna have to just let this one slide you know accepting that mm. that's actual love everybody else is talking about bargaining yeah but also there's a, there's an important aspect of Titanic that they 
they actually talk about it and they, they get this wrong, as in the conversation between uh, Daniel and Sam. <coughs> well, Witcher Curtis misinterpreted Titanic. Yeah. <laughs> they, they get it wrong, but what we see... Is it because is Rose had any agency at all? Well, indeed. Um, <laughs> it, as we see the relationship evolve, what, what the film is telling us gets it right. What Daniel and Sam tell us is not quite right because Sam says there was just one person for, for Leo and Kate. No, that's not the case. Yeah, that is bullshit. Jack explicitly says to Rose, you're going to go on, you're going to have a life, she you're going to get married, she you're going to have babies. You're going to die an old lady it's, warm in her bed. Exactly. And she, it does. Is, and she does. It is all about the fact that I yes, love you, this I want you to have this. It's not... is incredibly intense, but there is more after that. There is life after that. And that tells me that that's what Daniel and Joe had between them. That we loved each other incredibly and I know you are going to miss the shit out of me, but there is potentially more for you and I want you to have that. Richard, go back and rewatch Titanic. I I think it was about enduring love, right? You know, like, um, is it Rose? She goes out to the middle of the ocean. Is it Rose? Have you not seen Titanic? Yes. I know it's your favourite movie. I'm getting, getting It's not getting my favourite movie. It's up there, though. Well, it's your favourite James Cameron. The, that show um, we did, and it's really good, folks. It's, it is. It's, that's, that, that was, I remember, remember listening to that one, and that's why I caught my eye. I was just like, well, this is about en- love's enduring. And that got me thinking about, well, you know, his love for his wife is enduring, even though, you know, he, the, I, there's a fan theory about him liking Emma Thompson's character. Because when Claudia Schiffer turns up at the end, he calls her Karen. She it's says her Carol. name. Yeah, but he says Karen, and he's like, and then and she, and he's like, oh no, sorry, Carol, Carol, right. And so there's a theory that you know he actually loves Emma Thompson, right? You know, so like he's, this is a yeah, man that seen that deleted scene might add that to that. Yeah, again, theory. he gives her a, a, a hug from behind that's that's needing. Yeah, so you know, I think so with grief, right? What happens with grief? So I, you don't hear me quote Freud very often but he would freud freud talked about the work of grief and that that you know so people a lot of people will try and avoid the pain of grief right and that's understandable but actually the work of grief you know you have to there's there's an element of grieving and pain and and tearfulness and and um you know coming together and falling apart and coming together and one way in which i understand that is that you have a relationship with someone and then they die but you still have that relationship with someone and yeah. grief is about and all those emotions is about you, um, I guess, resolving how can you have a relationship with someone who's dead? Yeah. They're not here anymore. Yeah. And how do you work about that? And I, I remember calling a calling a I, I had a young girl who, um, you know, she was a teenager and she uh, got diagnosed with a, a cancer and um, and became quite clear early on that she wasn't going to survive from that and and she died and I remember I called the mum uh, on the anniversary of her death and uh, and I called her up and, I, and and we had a bit of a chat and I remember the mum sort of saying oh it I just feels like she's away it just feels like she's you know she's going to come through the door but you know it just feels like she's away somewhere and you know and I think that was a really it was a really apt description for me of grief you know and I think you know, and kind of resolving, like, I still have this relationship with someone, they're still there. And, and I think that Daniel still has that relationship. You know, he's not, he's not frozen, frozen. Like he's not, you know, he's interacting, he's working, he's, 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 you know, and he's engaging with his stepson. And so 
um, I think it was a very good relationship um, or it or it ended up being good. It's a good relationship for him and it's not holding him back, right? Like not like with um, Laura Linney's, Linney's character where it's, you know, f- keeping him from progressing forward. Yeah, and the, the fact that they, I was going to say they give him Claudia Schiffer at the end, that's not quite what happens, but it's... He's still going to have to work. Yeah, there's, there's this implication that he is still open to the idea that there might be someone else that he can connect with. And that, again, the, the, what you were saying about the work of grief, it, it would be so straightforward after loving somebody and losing them and being heartbroken about that to come to the conclusion that the answer to this is don't love anybody again stay away from people and then you will not have to go through this pain again but but part of what grief does as you work through it is it re-establishes connections with other people because we can't survive with other people because if we pulled back when we were hurt and went off on our own and decided that we were going to be entirely self-sufficient we wouldn't survive very long as a species we can't survive without other people yeah no and the the, uh, you know the 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 treatment uh, if you want to call it that for grief is to be around people yeah Uh, and that's and it's not enough um, because it doesn't resolve the pain, but it helps, and it helps people move forward. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> There's a one lengthy deleted scene. I am so glad they removed. It's the Claudia Schiffer one. Uh, Sharon, do you yeah. want to explain this one? Okay, so um, not great. It changes are, everything we just said it because really it's does. horrible and weird. There are references to Claudia Schiffer uh, at, at a couple said, of points I like in the Claudia film. Schiffer. At the I very, like her a lot. It, one of the jokes at the funeral uh, that Daniel mentions, uh, what we were saying about the fact that he and Joe could talk about death and and bring some humour into that as they were preparing for it. She, he mentions that she joked that that he should bring Claudia Schiffer as his date for the funeral. So he obviously has a mad crush on Claudia Schiffer. Joe knew about it. He's a, She's on his celebrity crush list. This is one of the ones that's okay. It's if Claudia laminated. Schiffer turns up at the front door, then that's fine. Um, but She actually um, does, so... Well, indeed. And then when he meets Carol at the end, who is just a mum of one of Sam's school friends... Played by Claudia Schiffer. Played, she's played by Claudia Schiffer. Looking very, I might say, and I love this... Very normal, very just a mum that you might meet. In Not a stalking down the, heart, uh, the corridor as a supermodel. Absolutely. She is gorgeous, don't get me wrong, but she looks normal gorgeous, like attainable gorgeous. Nauseous. <laughs> there we go, we're portmanteauing this one. I think but that might actually be one scene. of my secret skills, portmanteaus. <laughs> there is a scene in between these two where Daniel decides in his <sighs> infinite wisdom that Googling or Binging or whatever it is he does. Is Ask Google? Jeeves. Ask Jeeves. It was 2003 after all. Um, he goes he, to the Geo Cities. He for looks for Claudia Schiffer, Schiffer naked. naked. And it brings up a list of questionable porn sites. Very questionable. And then, but because it has to be a comedy situation, he gets a knock at the door. He's like, oh God, there's pop up. This thing's really weird. And then he considers unplugging the computer because he can't get it to turn off or to go away and doesn't. And it's like, no, actually do. do. Yeah, Instead, do he that. weirdly drapes his cardigan over the computer screen in a way that no one ever does. Yeah. And then his father-in-law... So at the door, yeah, it's, it's Joe's dad. The guy who was Sam's grieving... Sam's grandfather. At, who was grieving at the funeral. Yep. He's like, um, hey, I wanted to talk to you about 
drills or something. Yeah. Anyway, so they, they come in, they start having a conversation, and he he like, wants I'm gonna to go look to your something up on the internet. Oh, so he wants to go and use the computer. He finds the porn, and it gets wait, 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 worse. Wait, 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 because. <laughs> Liam Neeson now runs upstairs to Sam's room and says, right, do you want to earn 50 pounds? And Sam's like, all right. And he says, right, I can't explain this to you. Just agree with whatever I say. Gets him downstairs and says, look at this, Sam. What have you got? You know, what have you been looking at on my computer? And uh, Sam, this wonderful little actor. It's the way he looks at him when he does it. It's just like, it's a double. Yes, It's a back and me. forth. Uh, he's like, yep, I can't stop looking at porn. And he says, what do you think this is? And he's like, um, it looks like a website for women who have sex with animals. Sam, this is disgusting. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, at this point, the father-in-law is sort of there as the third wheel to, to be sort of, oh, well, you know, Sam, we're all coping with grief in our own different ways. It's so cringe-inducing. Indeed. And then the, the father-in-law goes away, and then uh, Sam and Daniel have this short conversation where he's like, I'm so sorry. And Sam's like, what were you actually looking for that that came up? Why didn't he just say, I was looking for Claudia Schiffer naked. Well, Don't eventually. click the pop-ups. Because uh, Sam, I think Sam looks at the screen and realises that underneath the pop-up is, yeah. is like... Claudia Schiffer website. Thomas Brody Sangster plays Sam, one of the best actors in this. He was the guy who I always wished would play Will Parry in a full-on version of His Dark Materials. I like that they uh, diversified for the BBC version, but that kid doesn't have the same kind of like and quiet charisma of this, this kid. Uh, Brody Sangster was far too old for Oh yeah, by that point. At the, at the time when I was uh, hoping for it, it was around about the time of the movie, The Golden yeah. Compass, which they never made a sequel for. Indeed. But yeah, he, he was in um, Game of Thrones, I think. He, he was, yeah, he was horribly killed. He was Jojo. <laughs> he was April. horribly killed April. applies to just about everybody. Willow's now watching April. the kind of TV where I say, and this person was in Game of Thrones. Did they die horribly? They did die horribly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they did. They all did, didn't they? Um, So that whole bit, very, very glad that cut out. But it just reinforces the fact that Daniel really likes Claudia Schiffer. Yeah. So should we talk? So we've got, we've done Daniel and the late Joe. So should we talk? Sam and the young Joe. Do they have a relationship? No, that's a, that's a crush. That's an yeah. infatuation. I've, I've actually put, you can tell when I'm acknowledging relationships because I've used ampersands. Sam just has Joanna's name in brackets next to him. Yeah, he's just been writing like Mrs. Joanna yeah. in his On his textbook. exercise book. <laughs> Joe is played by Olivia Olsen. Uh, this yeah. um, young actress plays Marceline in the uh, Adventure Time series. So like, she went on to good things there. I would also say Mariah Carey owes this kid a solid... Because this cemented All I Want for Christmas as the Christmas hymn for us now. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There's just one thing I need. Don't worry, I'm not going to play it. I'm not a beast. Oh, yeah. Great tune. Um, That was banging around our house on December 1st, that's for sure. Also, Um, was it you or Willow who pointed out, so what's Sam's plan? Learn the drums and don't talk to her. Yeah, that was Willow. Mm. Well, well, I'm right on on with Will because it was like, you know, so the relationship between Sam and Daniel, I think is really good. Like it's it's, it's good. It's close. It's honest. It's encouraging. It's he's tolerant of you know this kind of crazy scheme right it's non-patronizing as well between an adult and a kid 
it's it's kid led, mm. right? Like supportive, and there's no telling him no, whatever. And it's not doesn't feel like it's overcompensatory because of the grief. There's you an know, extra and- amount of horrendous dimensionality when you realise that later on Liam Neeson's actual wife actually died. That was um, Natasha Richardson. Natasha Richardson. Mm. Yeah. So you know, just and- watching it is haunting. You know, and there's a genuine connection, right? And they're sort of bringing the best out of each other. But the the thing that kind of so, which is the gestalt that I was sort of talking about before, right? Which is that you know the the relationship is is it's not just you know one plus one, right? Yeah. Like it's it, the, it's the what forms in between the two of you. Yeah, you know, and and you know, he encourages his son to break some, several airport laws, I'm sure. By oh, that kid would have gotten shot immediately. Um, yeah, post 9-11. Yeah, it's um, 2003. We, we, were, we went to uh, New York that year for like, one of our only ever vacations for like a, three, a ridiculous weekend yeah. of, we think we can do this, we mm-hmm. couldn't. Yeah. But they had everything on lockdown. was rammed with armed officers. In the deleted scenes again, Sam doesn't just run through the airport, he fucking cartwheels and backfires flips through using parkour skills. Uh, yeah, because they, they had this subplot where Sam was a really skilled gymnast. And it I can understand why they completely took it out because it's A, it's, it's totally futile. It doesn't achieve anything at all. B, why does he need to learn the drums to impress Joanna? Just use the gymnastic skills you already have. I'm sure she'll be... Just stand in the playground, no, backflipping. No, no, see, this is the thing. This is, and this is where I'm sorry, I was with Will. Is how about... The, um, Daniel just suggests, why don't you talk to her? Why don't you try talking to her? You know, you know, men will do anything to, to avoid talking. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, they will. Uh, but it's a Richard uh, Curtis film, and women are mysterious <laughs> creatures. And we do—do do they breathe air and eat food? We do not what, know. What, what do they want? Maybe Richard, try talking to one. <laughs> you might uh, find I d- out. I'd li- I, I do love the the, the just the acting. Just the subtle acting of playing the drums and seeing her, like, you know, smile. She's singing and smiling to all the audience. And you can see getting progressively more annoyed. Yeah. Although at the end, when she says all the things, all I want for Christmas is, yeah, and turns around and points at the drummer. The entire audience saw her turn around and point at the drummer. That's on film. And then she turns around and goes, and that old guy, and this old lady, and Ben Elton, and the Prime Minister for some reason, and the artist formerly known as Prince, and a lobster. As you say, stepfather being sort of this older brother-father figure. They're, they're trying to work out. There isn't that 
assurance of a father and birth blood son that we would go, well, you know, you just do what you have to. There's a sort of a question mark regarding how connected are we really? That's well played. Ultimately, that's something that 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 relationship is going to have to be re-examined. And there's also, I I mean, again, let's not get too real. It's a Richard Curtis movie. But unless Daniel has legally adopted Sam, Mm. they have problems on the horizon. Yeah, that's true. Uh, well, so, if they were married, probably okay. But, um, I mean, yeah. it's it's a Richard well, Curtis film, so none of this makes any sense. <laughs> Which, by the way, leads me to your thing. Mm. Would it be okay for Sharon to rant about London prices? <laughs> Go for it. Okay, so every time I watch rom-coms, this is not just Richard Curtis, I will just say, this is rom-coms generally that are set in metropolitan cities. Steam starts coming out of my ears. Uh, Hunter, what you said about not necessarily picking up on the class discrepancies in this film, oh my God, it is riddled with it. <laughs> so uh, so rom-coms generally, when they're set in metropolitan cities, what tends to happen is that the, the people producing the films have absolutely no clue how real people live in environments where it is ridiculously expensive to rent or buy. Buying is practically impossible. Uh, renting is incredibly expensive. Jobs are hard to come by that hit the salary level that you would need to live in these places but everywhere has to be aspirational because it's a rom-com people have to want to be these people exactly if you shoot in an actual average little pokey London house people go this is fucking horrible I don't want to watch this film but this is the other thing When when it comes to London in particular, London doesn't really... Uh, I'm to say London doesn't have those little pokey houses. Oh, it does, no, for it the does, super rich. It does, but the, the, what most people living in is like split up houses that have been divided into multiple yeah. occupancy apartments. The big ones tiny. that we see are people like are ones in... that are second homes for politicians. Exactly. Remember what I said about if the political you, class? If you work in a restaurant, you are living in a room. Yeah. If you're lucky. Oh, well, we used to dream of having a room. <laughs> we used to live in so shoebox at Middlet Road. The, the, the one that I've ever seen, that springs to mind, that I've ever seen where I've gone, yeah, that scans, is in One Fine Day, Michelle Pfeiffer is an architect and apparently a relatively successful one. This is a job that pays pretty well. So many architects. So many architects. Because it's like, we need a job where they, they are paid reasonably uh, architects. And they do know. something but that's they are, really cool. They have a flexible enough role that they can take time off to hang out with their new person. And it's an understandable career. You you design buildings, people pay you vast amounts of money. Indeed. That's great. But anyway, so, so yeah, Michelle Pfeiffer clearly has a reasonable salary, the apartment she lives in with her son is, is pokey. tiny. There's His like a curtain separating is the separated rooms. by a curtain. This is that, that's believable. I, I can accept that. But for the most part, you tend to get these these ridiculously palatial, palatial apartments or houses that people live in. Like a Tony so Stark house. I thought, you know what? I'm actually gonna have a look at this and see if I can find some uh, information about the, the level of housing that people in this film live in and whether there is any realism to it at all. It's a Richard Curtis. So yeah, okay. So just to give you an idea, in he terms lives of in fucking Shrekland. in terms of context and background, the uh, the housing market in the UK has outpaced salary increases to an insane level, especially in other in words, London. salary increases have been dismal for years. Yeah. 
Um, and, and in London, and it is particularly shot bad up. because London is where people who have vast quantities of money, often from outside the UK, buy, buy property, all the property, uh, leave it empty, prices and and leaving nowhere for people on quote unquote normal salaries to actually be able to afford to live. So just to give you a, a bit of an idea of context, the average salary in uh, 2002 in London was about 30k. Uh, for the rest of the UK, it was about 20. So London is already half as much again in terms of earnings as, as you would get in the rest of the UK. In terms of uh, how that's changed over the years, it is now about 35k for the rest of the UK. And in London, is only 40. Now, that means that London salaries actually haven't increased at the same pace as everywhere else. So London's actually got so poorer. So people who live in London or work in London are actually making, on average, a little bit less now than they used to be. Um, in terms of the uh, the house prices, uh, they've, they've absolutely shot up. And some of the comparisons that I, that I looked at, some of these places have quintupled in terms of how much they would cost you to buy Holy between shit. 2002 and now. Oh, Andrew Lincoln, I own an art gallery around the corner. You yeah. own an art gallery. Exactly. Ga- how could you even own an art gallery in London? Some of them have only I... doubled. But to give you an idea, they were a million pounds back in 2002. They're two million now. <laughs> so the, the ones that I couldn't get specific figures on, Daniel is clearly rolling in it. The art board that he's working on suggests to I... me that he's probably an architect. But I don't know how to use this. <laughs> but the house that he lives in with Sam is gorgeous. It's massive, it's open, it's airy, it's light, it's beautiful. Um, so he, they're clearly rolling in it. Mm. Uh, Sarah's split-level apartment that she, she goes into, she has this tiny little kitchen downstairs mm. and then she has a set of stairs that goes up to a I think it's really sweet. living room, yeah. be- bedroom. You, yeah, and I agree. It is very nice and it's very sweet, but it does look like the kind of place that would probably cost a, li- a little bit It's less. basically a big cabin bed. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, I, I don't know the figures for that one at all. Uh, Karen and Harry live in a house that looks modest enough and like a very sort of normal family-type house, but we've already been told that they live in the not dodgy end of Wandsworth. Mm. Again, Wandsworth doesn't apparently The kids go to the same school, yeah. No, 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 they don't go to the same school. The whole point of the nativity at the end is all the schools in the area have all come together. Right, right. So there's kids from rich schools, which I'm guessing is uh, Sam and Joanna and uh, probably Karen's kids as well. And then there's the kids from the poorer schools as well. But I bring you back to the fact that she's the Prime Minister's sister. Yeah. So the odds that her kids are, are sort of going to a bog-standard school and she's still living in a bog-standard house. I know he's only just become the Prime Minister, but political careers take a bit longer than he that. He thinks Margaret Thatcher is a saucy minx. He is a granny shagger. He is a bit weird, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so... Oh, I, th- um, I thought it was played for laughs. I think he was... Oh, oh yeah. I know, oh, I know. Very I, much, I love yeah. that line. <laughs> Put it this way. <laughs> he's clearly not a conservative. Uh, uh, Prime oh yeah, actually, he has spoken out against shitty behaviour in in more recent times. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I meant like David, the character oh, right. is clearly not. Yeah, with that, he's he's here's an example of like this is what we wish Tony Blair actually said to America yeah. at that point Indeed. for this contingent. Yeah, but so, yeah, so the yeah, ones yeah. the ones that I actually had some figures for. We'll we'll start with the lower ones because these are these are actually the ones that have increased the most. But again, this this came out to yeah, all right, that does sound vaguely believable. So um, Natalie has had to move back in with her parents um, in Wandsworth. Apparently they filmed the scene in Lambeth, not Wandsworth at all. Um, but the, the house on the road that they filmed, the houses there are now, you would pay about a million for them. Mm. 
-hmm. okay? But back in 2003, they were about 200,000. And if we consider the fact that Natalie points out that she went to school in this area, her parents have probably lived in that house her whole life. So chances are they bought it a lot earlier when it was a lot less expensive. So it is believable that Natalie's parents and the rest of her family still live in that house, in that area. They're probably a lot technically on paper more wealthy now because the house is worth a small fucking fortune but <laughs> but them living in it is believable however that, that I can buy next door but next door Mia Mia lives next door to Natalie's family Mia is a receptionist for a charity <laughs> what kind of money is Mia making that she no 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 I'm not saying here's your Christmas bonus one could, billion she could be pounds. saying that she has necessarily bought a £200,000 house in 2003 in Wandsworth Stroke Lambeth the dodgy end but let's face it the rent isn't going to be cheap either also it's it's a, it's a house for a family of seven yeah What's she doing in there? That is a very good question. Unless she's house sharing with like five other people. Yeah, which is also entirely possible. Oh God, who all hate her and want her to move out. (laughs) Which is why she keeps having affairs. She's desperate to find someone she can move in with. Oh, poor Mia. Mia died on the way back to her home planet. (laughs) Maybe... But maybe, maybe you've uncovered why she's hitting on the boss. She yeah, needs money. She needs the money. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. It's, it's, Blackmail. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a layered. It's it's there's a lot of thought into yeah. it. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, the, the side next note, one... we never we mentioned Rowan Atkinson because he's ancillary to this, but he's almost like a guardian angel yeah. when he effectively alerts Emma Thompson to the bullshit. Yeah. Which is useful of him but he also uh, helps the kid run through the airport doing his illegal parkour thing uh, in a sort of oh this is definitely not going to get a child murdered yes yeah in in his original plot line he was supposed to be a guardian angel a guardian Christmas angel but they they kind of dialed that back a little bit this Christmas twig yes indeed Um, the the next one up was I have a present for you Baldrick it's a fist (laughs) yeah the the next one up was Mark's flat um, he has. He appears to have a flat near oh, the south Oh, his palatial bank. mansion. Yep. I think he's was... outside the BFI. Yeah, you said. How did he manage to afford to live this close to the BFI? So uh, the blocks of flats that are in that area, uh, again, in 2003, they were worth just under 200,000. Um, which uh, that doesn't sound like a lot now, but you've got to remember this was 2003. This was before the financial crisis of 2008. Right. Things have not bubbled and exploded. So yet. that's what happened when Juliet turned up and was like, "Banoffee." He was like, I've eaten gold for breakfast. I shit on your <laughs> banoffee like pie. So he has a flat in the South Bank and he owns an art gallery. Those flats in the South Bank, they vary quite a lot in, in what they're worth now, but on average, around about a million. So again, if he hung on to those properties, Mark is now absolutely rolling in it. Jamie, the house that he shares with his girlfriend in Chiswick, that was worth a million in 2003. It's now worth about two million and they have a holiday cottage in France. What job is Jamie doing, again, that allows him to take however long off to go and write a novel and have an affair with his Portuguese maid? He's the Andy McNabb of romance novels that are also uh, psycho novels. But he's not a successful novelist. He says his writing's not that good. So it's not as if he has that kind of, of, we expect you to be ridiculous. So he inherited a million dollars from his father. Maybe. Or two. I mean, like, you need a two million to also yeah. get that cottage. So um, so the, the one that I found last, uh, Peter and Juliet's Notting Hill House. 
the three level. Juliet has some kind of, of uh, craft workshop downstairs. Jesus She's, Christ. We, we see her surrounded by bolts of fabric and it looks as though she like makes dresses or something like that. I would so um, like to see more have, of Juliet in this film. They have stairs that go up to their little living room area and there's more stairs that go up to whatever's upstairs. <laughs> I'm assuming Richard Curtis was go... like, his fingers poised over a scene. It was like, She's a woman. Yeah. I don't know what don't big know women what do. Women she, do. She, she she's downplaying with her pretty things. Um, she has to, from, from the living room where they're sitting and watching TV, she has to go down some stairs to answer the door to Mark. Right. Um, so, and, and when you see their house from the outside, basically this Does is that like, mean that Peter just needs to get up and glance out the, out window, the window to see Mark yeah. standing in the street? Absolutely. With placards, um, so the, which are is, legible from the second floor. The, the house that they used for the exterior is a pink a pink painted muse house in Notting Hill. Mm-hmm. It was worth. I'm assuming a, he got a lot of goodwill for Notting Hill. So it would appear. Uh, it was worth a million pounds in 2003. It's wow. worth two million now, but it was worth a million pounds in 2003. I say again, what the fuck is Peter and Juliet doing for a living that they can afford a million pounds? <laughs> multi-level muse house in 2003 so, she is like 12 so this is like house porn you go yes. to the cinema and go and it, oh I'd love oh, to live there but, but this is believe me love actually is not the only candidate for this thing that makes me so incredibly mad oh, yeah. but it is up there everything but set in New York it, it just I'm just sat there going how how are these people surviving what is their income stream and tell me why I should care about them if it genuinely is high enough for them to live this well I'm a busker now to go back to my Knightsbridge apartment. Yes. <laughs> right. Anyway. Let me... Knightsbridge is where uh, Harrods is, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. I don't know whether anybody actually lives in that oh, area. Oh, no. I live just next to I've Harrods. I've got a flat just above Harrods. No, no. I, I live in the <coughs> department store-sized house next to Harrods. <laughs> Anyway, I, I went. Oh, I went to London. I went to London as a kid um, with with my mum, and we bought. Oh, like we were in Harrods, and we bought some toys, and, and we. I bought this like wind up car that was like the outside of it was like a shape of a mouse, and and it would like go very very fast. Like it was it was it was this amazing thing. And so Did I you set it loose in Harrods? I uh, I was. Maybe I was eight years old at the time, and I wound it up and like across the food court of the of, of the oh, food nice. court. <laughs> oh, nice! You little scamp. That's yeah, uh, well yeah. done. <laughs> Okay, we're actually going to finish now on what I consider to actually be the healthiest relationship in Love Actually uh, and the saddest, and it's one most people just don't know about. The headmistress that I mentioned before, who was in that deleted scene with the Emma Thompson's horrible son who writes about visible farts, uh, played by Anne Reed, who was Leslie Tiller, the florist in Hot Fuzz, uh, the one who got the shears in the face, goes home and tells her lesbian life partner, Geraldine, played by... Uh, Francis de la Tour. Francis de la Tour. If you've seen uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, that's the very tall French lady that Hagrid has a thing for. Um, yep. She's wearing a headscarf and ailing, and she's in bed and coughing, and is obviously very ill. And they have this lovely, mature little chat... 
and uh, the headmistress, who still doesn't have a name, but I'm going to call her Anne. Anne mentions that uh, she had a, a boy write a, a story about visible farts, and Geraldine just creases up laughing at the very prospect. And then says, you know, off, off you go to the kitchen, make me some uh, food, domestic goddess. And it's so... It's, it's what I talked about regarding what Daniel and the first Joanna went through. The head, Anne, the headmistress, and Geraldine are going through this. And it's just there. And then at the Nativity play, Emma Thompson uh, uh, reads out a sort of dedication to the unnamed headmistress, whom she would actually have named. Yeah. Uh, and you know, for for her recent loss, and she's sitting there in the audience, so there really wasn't that much time together for these two. There is also a, a brief intermediary shot of the two of them in bed at night, asleep together, and Geraldine coughing with Chekhov's cough. It's a it's a mature, sweet, loving, healthy relationship. It's gay as fuck, and it wasn't in the movie. And Richard Curtis has, in the past said that he regretted not putting it in the movie and if you type in love actually deleted scene that's the top one that one is a favorite for love actually mythologists mm. it sounds so mature doesn't it mm. yep yeah yeah very much so and it's it's very real and it's like you said uh hunter about the the idea that there is there's a difference between love and a relationship. This is a relationship with two women who have clearly cared about each other, supported each other, uh, and adored each other for a long time. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the film, in for all its fat shaming, there's, there's a couple of really good moments around, um, I guess, sexual identity. You know, he, he did, um, Daniel says to Sam, you know, like, you know, a, a, the, the person you love... Uh, she, he, you know, like mm. that's good for 2003. It's really good for 2003, you know. So it, you could give it some marks for that. It's a pity that that, that scene is not in it. Yeah, um, it is. I think and it's unfortunately in such uh, low grade uh, captured quality, I can't even splice my own version of Love Actually without Mark in it. Yeah, right. I would also he, probably cut Colin out because my fucking God. <laughs> Yeah. yeah Although apparently January Jones did write half, half her own lines for that scene, and, and she, they are really some of them are really yeah. funny. So. And Alicia Cuthbert's also great. I mean, yes. Honestly, frankly, again, that's a whole nother movie. The girls movie. are really leaning into it, and that's what yeah. makes it funny. Bottle of beer. Yeah. But that is not real. Again, in my head, this is not real. It mm. never happens. <laughs> it's Colin's fugue state. Yeah. Colin lands, realises that Milwaukee is really fucking cold, turns around and comes home again. Also, he goes to a, a bar and says, I'll have a beer, please. And the guy doesn't say I'm going to need to see some uh, ID because it's 21 and he doesn't look 21 uh, emotionally speaking he's not 21 they do have <laughs> to check your ID emotionally speaking he's barely 12 especially if they immediately sense that you're from another country mm-hmm. I don't know if the, the, the guy he's gone to like the little Britain-ish tavern but surely the joke only works if everyone's got a Milwaukee accent <laughs> <laughs> I was born on Wrigley's Field. So I, I one more thing, one yeah. more thing. It's cheesy, but I love the, if you can't say it at Christmas, when can you say it? I love that line. And why is it important to express yourself at Christmas time? Because you're taking about. stock of your life at the end of a year. Everyone's I'm, together and trying to trying to feel 
genuine feelings of joy and sometimes it's difficult and there, there is some measure of performance in that. There, I would also say there's an element of the, the purpose of Christmas and winter festivals generally is that this is a time of year when uh, if, you, if you live in an area of the world where there is seasonal variations between hot and cold, and obviously this doesn't apply in Australia, so it's ironic that we're having this conversation with you, Hunter. Yeah, um, you have Christmas on the beach. The point of winter festivals is that when things are at their worst weather-wise you bring light into the house you bring comfort in the form of elaborate food into the house you bring togetherness um, and gifts and set things up in such a way that people can feel the the love and importance of, of getting through this low season this low point in hormones and light mm-hmm. and cold and but also the fact that everybody's trapped in together Every, like if there's not something going on cabin fever is going to happen mm-hmm. and people are going to oh. start falling out and, hence and uncle jamie at that uh, family gathering yeah. immediately <laughs> turning around and flying to paris yeah. and little portugal in in france or what is and what? there's uh, i don't even to say but yeah it's so interesting. My There's just not what I thought you guys were going to say. Because, like, Australia, it's summertime, right? Like, mm-hmm. the uh, Christmas comes at the end of the year and we have a long holiday. December and January is, you know, the school's out end of December or mid-December and uh, kids don't go back to school until the end of January, right? Like, and it's, it's and Christmas lands at the end of the year, it's warm, everyone's, everyone's having time off, it's quite exciting, but also, you know, tiring because you're trying to get around. And, you know, I think for Australians at least, or maybe in my circle, I don't know, like the, it's, it is a time of kind of connecting with people. You know, it's about being vulnerable in your relationships and trying to, you know, going you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna show people that i like them or care about them by giving them a gift you know and sometimes you give gifts to people that you know i'm gonna give someone a gift that i don't normally give a gift to or whatever and like and i think that this ties into communicating to people you know hey you know you're really important and I'm, i'm i'm gonna i've been thinking about this all year and i'm gonna do it like because i think it's it's important and connecting and uh and and that's why i think i like that it's it's a nice it's a nice moment yeah I mean, I think that that what that says is that regardless of the weather and regardless of the culture, that time of year has meaning in terms of connection mm. for for many many people. Yeah, and and I I I watching it as an Australian, like the idea of a, a northern hemisphere winter the, the idea of snow and and um is just so romantic like to us and it is you, you guys would probably laugh because this like you you go around melbourne where i live at the moment like christmas trees are up we've got santas we've got snow like it's potentially really hot on christmas day but we all still do the northern european the thing yeah yeah <laughs> and, and and we really dig it like it's really it's 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 one of those things that we think oh wow that's that'd be so cool to be overseas and see it snow or something it's it's funny though because it is really unusual for us to have actual snow at that time of year especially now but honestly it it's for the for as long as i can remember it's much more common for us to get snow in um, january or february or occasionally even early March um, the, the whole we have snow on Christmas Eve do you have any idea how many visiting plans that would fuck up 
Like in terms of, we were supposed to go to mum and dad's tonight. We can't because the three inches of snow on the ground. What are we going to do now? That's happened Believe to me, us. you don't want snow on Christmas Eve. <laughs> I feel it in my fingers. I feel it in my toes. I feel it in my toes. Yeah. Love is all around me. I'm afraid you did it again, Bill. It's just I know the old version so well, you know. Well, we all do. That's why we're making the new version. Right, okay, let's go. I feel it in my fingers. In my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Feel it in my Love is all a oh, fuck wank bugger shitting ass head and hole. Start again. I feel it in my fingers. In my fingers. I feel it in my toes. Feel it in my toes. Yeah. Christmas is all around me. And so the feeling grows So the feeling grows It's written in the wind Solid gold shit, Maestro. As we approach year end, let's take a look under the tree to see what Father Christmas left for all the good boys and girls who support School of Movies on Patreon for five dollars or more. Because these lucky little fuckers get access to an exclusive bonus feed, all the B-sides. This year I've talked about Avatar Season 2, a.k.a. The Way of Water, James Cameron's failed Spider-Man film, the animated series of Silver Surfer, I revisited the Star Wars prequels, talked about the Infinity Gauntlet comic, there was a film about a Mortal Kombat fighting tournament starring Jean-Claude Van Damme and Roger Moore, we talked about Ninja Scroll and Super Mario Brothers, the movie, Family Guy, Star Wars, Rock the Dwayne Johnson in The Rundown, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, Don't Breathe 1 and 2, Cocaine Bear, Halo the TV series, something called Goat Story, all the Assassin's Creed games, they did a five-part series on human history in film, South Park seasons 1 to 3, Willow's Creepy Horror Fest, Part 2, the sequel, The Revenge. Five Nights at Freddy's, also featuring Willow. Plus, we also talked in that one about the Banana Splits and Willy's Wonderland. Disney's Wish, M. Night Shyamalan's Old. Aren't we all? <laughs> Don't worry, darling. Starring the exceptionally talented Florence Pugh and revisiting the extended edition Lord of the Rings films in the cinema. That's the kind of stuff you can expect in your digital stocking every week. Plus, you can listen to the shows on Wednesday, so you can just use Friday night to get drunk instead. Or as well as, if that is your choice. And all the goodest, bestest 
boys and girls who support School of Movies in the top tier $15 bracket, they get a very special little shout out. So that would be Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Bunesy, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Haskell, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Wazenski, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellasayan, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esmond. Thank you, thank you, thank you, all of you. I am now recording this entirely in the nude. So, before we go, Hunter, do you have anything that you'd like to direct the listeners towards? I used to run a podcast called Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, you can find it on wherever you get your podcasts uh, or twoshrinkspod.com. My co-host and I, uh, Amy, we used to talk about psychological disorders. We did a few shows on movies and things like that. But that, that, that's about all. I'm not really doing anything online at the moment. Bit, bit busy with work and uh, life stuff. If you do stop doing something we will make sure that we tell folks definitely and um, it's been great to be on it's been lots of fun thank you uh, well you were exactly the person i thought of when it came to doing this and this is this is even better than the show i hoped we'd do so that is all from us this week but we have a very special holiday season movie next week it is a commission it is an anime and it is a masterpiece tokyo godfathers by the late great satoshi Kon. See if you can track this one down over the next two days and see it. It is absolutely worth a rental. No matter how this time of year hits you, we promise you will feel great by the end. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw, the god of sex. And I've been Sharon Shaw, partying with Elton John. And Love's Out. I don't always get to do it. And I respect those people. I respect the going to the cars. I respect it. I respect you. You can listen to this one on the radio. Fuck it, go, go. Totally. I'd be one of you guys. I wouldn't have made it this far. For Jules, I would have. I'm looking forward to Christmas. It's sentimental, I know. But I just really like it. I am hardly religious. I'd rather break bread with Dawkins than Desmond Tutu, to be honest. And yes, I have all of the usual objections to consumerism, to the commercialization of an ancient religion, to the westernization of a dead Palestinian press ganged into selling PlayStations and beer. But I still really like it I'm looking forward to Christmas Though I'm not expecting A visit from Jesus I'll 
be seeing my dad My brother and sisters, my gran and my mum They'll be drinking white wine in the sun Don't believe just cause ideas are tenacious It means that they're worthy I get freaked out by churches Some of the hymns that they sing have nice chords But the lyrics are dodgy and yes, I have all of the usual objections To the miseducation of children Who in tax-exempt institutions Are taught to externalize blame And to feel ashamed And to judge things as plain right or wrong But I quite like the songs Expecting big presents The old combination of socks, jocks and chocolates Is just fine by me Cause I'll be seeing my dad My brother and sisters, my gran and my mum They'll be drinking white wine in the sun I'll be seeing my dad My brother and sisters, my gran and my mum They'll be drinking white wine in the sun And you, my baby girl My jet-lagged infant daughter You'll be handed round the room like a puppy at a primary school And you won't understand But you will learn someday That wherever you are and whatever you face These are the people who make you feel safe in this world My sweet blue eyed And if my baby girl When you're 21 or 31 And Christmas comes around And you find yourself 9,000 miles from home You'll know whatever comes Your brother and sisters and me and your mum will be waiting for you in the sun when Christmas comes your brothers and sisters your aunts and your uncles your grandparents cousins and me and your mum will be waiting for you in the sun drinking white wine in the sun darling whenever you come we'll be waiting
Christmas It's sentimental, I know Thank you very much. This has been an extraordinary night. Thank you. Get them up, get them up. How do you make them stand up? There, we're like that. An incredible, incredible privilege that I never thought I'd have to play with people like this. Please thank them.